The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 61 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 2nd of November, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's show, we at Squawk Ident are very grateful to have the opportunity to speak with an aviator who has navigated some rather challenging obstacles along his journey in aviation. His story is exceptional because it tackles a topic that is often too uncomfortable for many pilots to even discuss. Perhaps because it involves a disease that is often taught to be a career ender within our industry. Today's featured guest has graciously agreed to discuss his aviation journey in an effort to express to our listeners that this disease can be managed, but only after taking that very first difficult step. To help me, and navigating Flight 61 of Squawk Ident Podcast is one of my fantastic co-hosts. He is a former international and professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP, an avionics tech, and an RC aircraft commander. He's also a pickleball master and a commercial drone operator. Currently, he is a 737 pilot for Legacy Airlines, the name we use here on the show as an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his fortress of isolation, from somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas, help me in welcoming back to the show, Mr. Rob D. Rob, how you doing? Doing well, Tony. How you doing? It's good to be back. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good, too. Been flying, which I'm grateful Have for. You? Yeah, I actually yeah. I had a trip that ended yesterday. It was a relatively simple trip. It was one red eye from LAX to Miami. With a landing around 6.20 in the morning, we were able to get to the hotel before the sun came up, and 37 hours later, we did a late-night flight departing out of Miami back to Los Angeles, and we arrived at LAX at 11.35 p.m. last night. It was uh, my leg on that day, on on that flight, and we got to about 100 miles out. Started listening to the ATIS, and we were watching the ATIS change like every 10 minutes. It went from 10 miles viz to 5 to 2 to 1 oh. to 1 16th of a mile. <laughs> the ocean layers rolling in. The fog bank came rolling yeah. in, that marine layer, as we all know yeah. about in, in Los Angeles. Layer, 
the South Complex, uh, the 2.5 left, which was the Cat 3 ILS that we had to perform. Obviously, the captain had to do that. So I relinquished controls before we started our final descent. And uh, we went over the pro procedures and profile. And, and we had to execute a Cat 3 approach, auto land, basically, on, wow. the, uh, on the Airbus A321. And, uh, you know, the plane did a great job. Uh, it's not my first time doing an auto land with the captain. I've uh, done it plenty of times, both uh, on the line and in the simulator. But, man, it's so much fun. I mean, I yeah, live for this stuff, that, man. Right? Yeah, oh, that is cool. It was cool. That is cool. So when, when did you really see the runway? I mean, obviously, you're monitoring the insurance going in. But yeah. when did uh, you pick up the light or the we actual had, runway because it's so low? Yeah, we had uh, the runway environment, which was the approach lights. Uh, the approach lights were in sight at about 50 feet. Uh, wow. So right over to basically almost right over the threshold, uh, maybe a little bit before. Wow. So we had the, the approach lights, just the, the end, the tail end of the approach lights. Then we had the red or the green uh, runway threshold bars. And you could probably see about 500 feet to 1,000 feet down the runway. But as we progressed towards the shoreline, the fog got a little bit thicker, a little bit thicker. Um, yeah. I mean, it wasn't too bad. We didn't have to go uh, to like an extremely low visibility procedure, but it was fun. It was, it was uh, yeah. fun to I see bet that. It was rewarding too, because I mean, you, you kind of, that's kind of what you build, build up to, you know, when you're instrument training and, you know, all these hours and, and hours of, of studying and training and in simulators. And, you know, this is what it was for. And uh, when it happens and it, works out just the way it's supposed to be. I'm sure that's really rewarding. Yeah, it was, you know, and we don't have a HUD in the Airbus. It's, uh, you know, completely a two autopilot system. The airplane does a phenomenal yeah. job. It stays on centerline on the rollout very well. Um, cool. So yeah, it, it was great. Nice. How about yourself? Are you uh, flying currently or? Exactly the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, well, we finished out October with uh, I had a reserve line in October, mm -hmm. and I only flew one day turn, um, and it was gosh, I don't even remember. It was probably back on the eleventh or the twelfth of October, and um, I, I had vacation, and I also um, was on reserve for a couple days, uh, short call. Uh, like three or four days ago. I don't even remember. That's, that's how crazy it's been just, uh, but I never got used. So, um, just been, um, you know, enjoying my time here in Texas. Uh, the weather's really nice now, you know, the days are, are, you know, in the mid sixties and, um, good friend of mine got a brand new boat. So we took that thing out on the maiden the other day and, um, got to do a little bass fishing and, yeah, I saw your 3D uh, <laughs> uh, social media post there with your delicious bass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that was, oh, so no, that one, okay, that one you saw was up in, uh, during my vacation in Rhode ah. Island. Oh, so okay. yeah, that was a, yeah, I think it's blackfish, they call it, so, mm. but, so I've been fishing a lot lately. <laughs> Man, um, I, I, as I like a, fish. Uh, you know, as most pilots that are uh, relatively senior and on reserve would say, lucky. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's just, it just happened to be luck of the draw. I didn't, didn't get used. And, um, I, I do start a trip on Wednesday. I got a hard line for, uh, for November. So, okay. um, about 
Yeah, about 85 hours of flying for November. So um, starting with a, every trip's a four day. And I just found out today I get to fly with our uh, one of our Czech airmen, which is always fun. So um, it's going to be good because I also have training this month. So I'm starting to study up for that. Oh, and um, what a good way to kick off the first flight after being off for a couple of weeks with a Czech airman. So it's yeah. going to be fun and interesting. It always is. It's, you know, as we all know, it's not a big deal. Um, but, um, I just got notified of that today. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great happening. that we have that app that uh, tells you, ding, ding, your next flight involves a member of management. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> just the heads up. Well, yeah. hopefully, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. And it, that's actually, I've always found that to be a positive experience because you get to pull on the ear of a checkmate. Hey, I got uh, recurrent coming up. Uh, so yeah. there you go. Yeah, what's the gouge? Bond. Yeah, what's the gouge? Yeah. What are they looking at? What are the weak points? It's, I want to study. Next thing you know, they're yeah, like, oh, hot this topics and stuff. Yeah. This guy's pretty sharp. So yeah. Yep. Well, good. Well, now, cool. that, our, now that our pre-flight is complete, let's push off the gate. Start the virtual podcast engines here and get ready to take off. Joining us today is a fantastic aviator here to discuss his journey in aviation. We will explore how his battle with addiction nearly put an end to his career, how his recovery, thanks to the HIMS program, saved not only his career, but his life. And hopefully, someone out there listening will hear his journey and decide that maybe now is the time to take that first step. Joining us here from his home in Eagleville, Tennessee, David W. David, how the heck are you? Hey, good, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, our pleasure. I'm aboard. So I like your story about your Cat 3. Yeah. You know, it's funny about at the, if that was that low in the 7-4, we had to get tugged off the runway. And we couldn't see. Oh, because oh, you're high. Yeah. Higher than 50 yeah. feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, I was, I was laughing at you know, I, I just spent the last 45 hours with a Czech airman. So I've, I got the uh, FOM and stuff banged in my head for the am OE. So, I, you know, uh, that's that funny you say that because you know, it never dawned on me. Uh, you know, when you say you picked up the runway at 50 feet, a 747 isn't going to see it. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I mean, they're right. probably doing an auto land anyway, but still, yeah, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. yeah neat. You got three autopilot system in the seven four so right. it, it, it can come on down to zero zero if you have to and it's it's an amazing machine but that just cool. made me that made me laugh when you said about the we, we'd be sitting on the end of two five left there just getting in everybody's way until a tug came out because <laughs> <laughs> so. i couldn't see the ground <laughs> you know i have a new appreciation for the uh the heavy drivers out there landing at yeah. lax at night you know that's that's crazy yeah. It's an, it's an amazing machine. But hey, but once again, yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. And thank you for reaching out to us. Uh, David actually reached out to the Squawk Ident podcast through our, our website, uh, sent us an email uh, explaining a little bit about his journey and his story and, and mentioned that he would love to come on the show uh, to tell his story that hopefully, you know, it'll help someone, at least, you know, one person out there uh, to get the help that they need. And we just want to say thank you for your courage to come on the show and tell us a little bit about the, the journey and the challenges that you've had to deal with. Uh, yes, sir. Well, uh, like you said earlier, I'm from Tennessee. I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. So I'm a long time suffering Tennessee Vols fan. Uh, <laughs> I had to throw that out there. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in East Tennessee and my father had me flying airplanes when I was a kid out of Knoxville. And we flew out of uh, downtown Island airport in Knoxville. Uh, 
we moved to another little town in East Tennessee called Copper Hill, Tennessee. Uh, that is, if people remember, it's where the 1996 Olympics were for the Whitewater River rafting. Oh. It's the Okoye River, and I grew up in that area. It's a really, you know, small part of Tennessee. Uh, and I was one of those typical kids that rode a bicycle out to the airport. You know, and I've always loved airplanes. You know, my grandmother used to make me my birthday cakes with little model, air, you know, little plastic airplanes on it. And, and I, I was lucky enough to have some group of gentlemen that took me flying in J3s and Cessna 170s. And uh, as long as I washed their airplane and helped them put gas in it or put the cowlings back on, you know, they let me fly with them. And that kind of put the bug in me. And during high school, I just did that. And kind of learned how to fly, you know, in a way they let me fly the airplanes. You know, I got to the point where I could land a J3. And then my dad stuck me in a glider when I was about 13 years old in Chilhawi, Tennessee. Uh, wow. And that was it, man. That was, that was cool. That, that's pure flying. I still fly gliders today. Oh, really? Uh, awesome. It, yeah. Now, now for a young person out there that wants to get into aviation we always hear that this pathway all right you got to go and get your private and get your get this and get that and there's a very set you know there's there's rails that you have to follow in order to get this profession off the ground but that's not necessarily true there's so many other options out there you've mentioned tailwheel aircraft you've mentioned gliders and your path kind of took you towards the glider route which i've always you know most of my training was in in arizona and in southern arizona there's some great too. Uh, glider ports out there and opportunities are, thermals yes. and australia i've always found yep. that yeah australia airport i've always found it so interesting but also kind of intimidating for myself. How did you find it as a 13-year-old flying gliders around? What was that like? I, I didn't want to get out. I, I wanted to stay in it. I mean, it was, it, it, you know, back then, I really, you really didn't understand the, the magic of it, right? If there's no motor and you're flying around. You didn't understand the lift, the drag ratios. You didn't understand what a thermal was or ridge soaring. You, know, you just knew that you got in this machine and they, said, grab the stick, you fly us around and you can do it. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was just amazing, you know, and, and it's been kind of like that for me. You know, they said, do it. And I did it. And I was like, I love it. This is great. This is wonderful. You know, but you're right. The pathways to aviation are, uh, yeah, it's not just go to college, go into a, a professional aviation uh, program. You know, my degree is in aerospace administration. You know, I, hmm. you know, so I could have a fallback if my, if God forbid, I didn't have a medical anymore or hmm. whatever. So, you know, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to have a really unique background in, in flying. I, I'm checked out in over 110 different types of airplanes. Hello. You know, <laughs> you know, and that includes gliders, wow. so I guess aircraft, right? Yeah. And I, I've got the opportunity to fly some really cool stuff, man. And, uh, yeah, you can do it anyway. I flew, I towed gliders, I towed banners, I'm an instructor, you know. But I getting back in the way is that when I was in East Tennessee, I did that when I went to college. Uh, I went to college at uh MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University. And uh, as I progressed through college, I got my uh CFIs and I started instructing and did a lot of terrible stuff, did some aerobatics. Uh, instruction and did uh, you know I got to the point at the end of my uh, 
instructing career that I was just doing CFIs, mm-hmm. you know, because I had lost patience for privates, and I I'll readily admit that I lost <laughs> patience. You know. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, once that got, and then I started flying for uh, a company in Nashville that did modifications on Navajos, and got to fly Navajos and build my multi time, and then moved on to 135 charter uh, in uh, Learjets. And it spent a 135 charter for a few different companies. I went corporate for about a year and a half out of uh, Lunkin Field up in uh, Cincinnati. Uh, It's my first time I moved north of the Mason-Dixon line, and that did not work out well. They didn't have sweet tea up there, so I didn't really know what to do with myself. We have sugar packets, though. It's not (laughs) the same. (laughs) It's not the same thing, guys. It's not the same. Nope. But that was another... I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but your careers are probably having the same thing that you have a group of people, groups of people along your career path that really mold you into who you are. Oh, absolutely. You know, like one of my CFIs, who's still a wonderful friend of mine. Uh, I'll say his name because he didn't, he didn't, his name's Skip Stewart. He flies for a legacy cargo also. Uh, he's a professional airshow pilot now. You should look him up. His airshow is amazing. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to be a plug, but he's a good friend of mine. Not uh, at all. That's cool. And uh, he, he taught me a lot. And then the the guys in Cincinnati, uh, my boss and chief pilot up there were amazing. And they, they took a cargo kid. I was a, a, a freight dog in the Falcon 20s and the Learjets and turned me into a polished corporate pilot. And, I'll, I'll, and I'll, I can never thank them enough. Those guys are amazing group of guys up there. And then when that job uh, finished up, I went to the fractional 135 in 2000 and I was there for 19 years. Is that over in uh, uh, Addison, Texas? Is that where that was? Uh, no, sir. The, uh, the 135 freight was in Addison, Texas. Uh, the other one is in Ohio. Oh, okay. It's uh, Northern Ohio. So okay. for the, uh, the, the large, the fract- the larger fractional. Mm-hmm. And I was there for 19 years, and I got to fly. You know, I flew the Hawkers, the Beachhead, the Citations, the uh, the, the that uh, that uh, what do they call that thing, the Nextit Beachhead, the Beachhead with the new engines in it, and uh, then I flew the Phenom 300 for them. So, uh, you know, and then uh, ended up at this uh, legacy cargo carrier, flying the biggest airplane of you know. <laughs> it's funny. We we're talking about. I was talking to my wife the other day. Is that the 747's APU is a TFE 731 Garrett, which is the same motor that powers Hawkers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it's an amazing machine. <laughs> so, now, can we say what airplane you're currently flying? Is that? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, the 747. Yeah, 400. The Dash. Nice. I fly the 400, the Dash yeah. 8, and the LCF. The LCF is the big one with the big modified fuselage. Mm-hmm. Carry the, like the Boeing stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The Boeing stuff. Yeah. So, uh, and along the way, uh, you know, when I was living here, I, I, I got out of CFI for a long time. And then I came back to Tennessee from, from uh, Cincinnati. And a good friend of mine who uh, used to run the MU2 school here in Smyrna, Tennessee, uh, he started the flight school and he had a Citabria. He called me up and asked me if I'd help him start the flight school and, and fly instruct for him. So I got back into CFI, began a CFI, and that was one of the best decisions I ever made. 
because I had something to give back. I had more to give back now. Uh, if, you, if that makes sense, is yeah. that I went out and flew and learned something and came back, and now I can teach people. Instead of being a 250-hour CFI, I was a 3,000-hour pilot. Yeah, that that, that taught yeah. people how to fly. Nice. Uh, and that 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 flight school turned into a great, great, great success. We had a uh, we had the katanas. You remember those DA twenties, DA forty katanas? That. Yeah. You got cool. some of those? Yeah. And of course, we had the arrow and arrows, and we had the one seventy twos, and we had a bunch of different terrible airplanes that went from Citabrias to Super Decathlons to PA eighteen Super Cubs. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time in it, as much time as I could in the tailwheels. So. So that's my thing. That's what I like to do. And then uh, another good friend of mine who collects airplanes has got some cool airplanes. I got to fly Wacos and oh, a, uh, wow. you know, and we had wonderful. some uh, pits and we yeah. had some really, he had some really cool airplanes, you know, Stearman's T6s, you know, uh, all kinds of wow. things I've gotten to fly in. So it's, it's, it's been an amazing, amazing, you know, amazing time. Amazing. I've never given up. But. You know, it's amazing to hear all this experience that you've amassed throughout your journey and, and all the different places you've been able to navigate and get in different types of airplanes. I mean, you said over a hundred different types of airplanes that you've commanded. That's, that's something that that's amazing. we aviators out here on the line, most of us only dream about. And, and to, to finally get to meet <laughs> yeah. somebody that has that experience. And like you said, we all, earlier you kind of alluded to the fact that we are a collection of, of who our journeys have allowed us to meet along the way. We stand on the shoulders of all those aviators that helped us get up over this wall to, to learn aviation, to really dive into how to be a professional aviator, how to make every single moment that you've experienced valuable and man, your, your base in knowledge is just so valuable. And the fact that you've, you've given that back and you're now here, you are really, you know, you said something earlier that amazed me. You said, I went from flying relatively light Learjets to flying 747s. (laughs) That's a pretty big jump how jump. did that transition <laughs> happen for you was that a challenge it, it, you know going from a non-airline environment to a airline environment the 121 environment which i had never been a part of so i have i had 19 years i remember thinking back more than that about 20 something 22 23 years of flying that i had to scrub does that make sense of yeah of the briefings and the different uh, ways to do the checklists and 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 I was lucky enough to have a sim partner uh, from a uh, that knew that he called it the dance that when you get the paperwork and mm-hmm. how do you set the box up and how you dance through the startup program how you dance through the pre-flight and how you and he explained it to me very very well and once I got that understanding of how the 121 world works. I got it, you know, because that translated from, you know, the pre-flight to get the engine started to, to taxi, to take off to everything. And that, that really, it really, really came together for me. Yeah. So I was having a hard time. I was, I was really having a hard time. I mean, I, I, mean, I remember, <laughs> John was embarrassed, but I remember sitting in there doing it at the, uh, 
what is it called with, with the computer? You know, the big computer screens where you get in there and you can hit the buttons on the on oh, the computer screen. Uh, yeah, they used to be the paper tiger, but now they're all fancy and touch screen. Yeah, it's off. It's at the, the, uh, uh, the FSBs, the procedures yeah, trainer FSB. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I couldn't even read a checklist, man. I couldn't read their checklist. If it was check, what what we used to say is checked. They had is set. <laughs> oh, and yeah. I could not. And, yeah. And the second session, the instructor looked at me and said, "Man, you are nowhere near where you need to be." And I had never had an instructor tell me that before. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, holy, holy moly, this yeah. is not good. We've all been you there know, at one point or another uh, in our in our journeys. <laughs> you know, I totally get you because I, I kind of went through the same thing. I'm sure Rob yeah. has too, especially when you're getting on with a mainline carrier. You want to put your best foot forward. Here you are. You yeah. study the best you can. They don't. They don't spoon feed you this information. You know, they, no, they, they told don't. us you need to show up ready for your triggers and your flows. And I was like, say what? Yeah. And I, yeah, and I, I was, <laughs> was going to make fun of the, the planes that we fly, you know, you fly the Airbus. I flew the 175 and, and David, you said you flew the Phenom. I mean, that's probably the e- easiest checklist of them all, you know, cause all you have to respond with is auto. Auto, auto, yeah, yeah, auto, auto. <laughs> you get in. A, <laughs> now, does the Phenom have automatic anti-icing? Is like the other Embraers do out on the uh, ice detection world? and auto. auto yeah, it, yeah, it, it just turns it on and it comes on whenever it needs it. Yeah, it just automatically. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. The, Why could the they make every airplane yeah. like that? You know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Phenom three hundred though, it turned off the anti-ice on the uh, on the wings at twenty nine thousand feet. Turn oh. it off because you didn't need you it anymore. Need yeah, yeah, because there's yeah. no ice above twenty nine thousand feet. You right, know, you and know. you're going fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's cool. all but, yeah. but yeah, I was, I, I, you know, I got to the point of, can I do this anymore? Because yeah, that was my first real big training event after I came back and got my medical back from going through the Hems program mm-hmm. to where I really. I had, to, I had to sit back and think, you know, I had a couple of things where I, I can I do this? You know, because during all my other trainings, you know, I was drinking. Yeah. You know, and uh, not heavily, you know, but all my other type ratings, you know, I was a pretty heavy drinker when I got my Phenom type rating, but not, not to the point. Well, I, I'd be lying to you if I said it was not a problem. It was an issue. But I was able to control. You know, I was thought I was able to control it. You were, you were what they yep. would call a functioning. No, I, 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 I hate that term. Do you? What? What? But, yeah, because what would you call it? Only an alcoholic would come up with a, a, a calling it a functioning alcoholic. <laughs> okay. Because there's nothing. There's nothing functional about your life. Mm. If you go to work hungover and intoxicated, does that sound like a functional individual to you? I would no. say no. Yeah, you, you're under no, the I, uh, you, effects of the alcohol. So. No, I, I never, I never drank before I flew. Okay, like like you saw in the movies, to where so people are drinking, right, taking a shot of vodka before they get on the airplane. I never did that, mm-hmm. but I know I woke up hungover, and hungovers under the influence. You know, yeah. I, it's point zero zero. Was it point zero four? I believe. Yeah. For the FAA. In some countries, it's point zero two, mm-hmm. but I never drank before I went flying. Uh, but I 
No, you know, I know. I, I, I if I probably would have, would I have blown over a point zero four, probably. Wow. Yeah. Well, on, let's on get multiple in, occasions. Let's talk about this because this is, you know, it's it's very interesting to hear your perspective having lived it. You know, you you had this amazing career, and you're continuing to have this amazing journey that's going to continue on, hopefully, for a lifetime. And to hear this, you know, all of us are like, wow, look at, look at all this experience and all these different types of airplanes and, and all this opportunity that you have had so far. And, and then you say something like, well, when I came back from the HIMSS program, and I, I know I'm going to say, well, whoa, what happened? How did it, how did it get to that? How did you even come back? Because most people that maybe don't know about the program don't really think that it's a, it's a thing because I know a lot of people, not aviators, because most aviators have heard of something or have known someone that have gone through the program, but especially a lot of the flying public passengers out there, they, they have no idea what's going on. What do you mean? You're not, you can't be a real person. You're a pilot. You have to be, you know, cookie cutter, <laughs> plastic, you know, you have to be freaking uh, Barbie's Ken, you know, the cutout to fit in the uniform and fly an airplane. And you mean you, you actually have to go through these programs. So let's talk about how, how this whole thing started for you. When did you actually start drinking? If I could ask that. And how did that progress to the point where you ended up going to the program? As I've learned more uh, about alcoholism and addiction over the last few years, I can look back on my life and pick up on alcoholic tendencies from back to 16, 17 years old when I was in high school, drinking with my friends. Either by the amounts of alcohol I would drink at one sitting, uh, you know, or the, the duration of the drinking. You know, if we were out on a, a, from a Friday to a Sunday camping trip or mom and dad went away and we were, you know, swiping the liquor from their cabinets and doing the things that kids typically do. Into college of fraternity life, and we all know about fraternity life. If you were in fraternities or been to a fraternity parties, you know it's all about drinking and as much as you can drink and as long as you can, you know. And and that back then it was never really an issue. I, I would I could drink it, I could get up and do my thing. You know, I was a lot younger then too. Yeah. You know, um, and then as I got into professional life and got with my first marriage. It, it it ebbed and flowed with my with my drinking, and I could looking back on it now, I was an alcoholic then, back you know, in in ninety nine ninety eight with with the definition of alcoholism. And what is that? You know, I mean, to say that well, I was an alcoholic then. What does that mean? I don't try to explain it to me because I I'm just ignorant in the fact that I know the stigma. I know. Right. You know, someone that drinks a lot and maybe drinks so much to the point where they're never sober, but I don't really understand the nuances of what defines an alcoholic. Well, it's basically if if you can't live, if you can't stop drinking when you want to stop drinking, you know, it's like imagine that you don't you you want to stop drinking a, a diet coke every day, but you can't. Mm. No matter what you do, you can't stop drinking that diet Coke that you, you, it, your, well, your life evolves around drinking. You know, if back then it was okay, I'll, I'll stop. For, I won't drink during the week. I'll wait for the weekend and I'll drink all weekend. 
Mm -hmm. Just to to get the wife to get off my back. Or when we go out to a bachelor party, I remember going to two bachelor parties with my, uh, all my fraternity brothers. And I, I drank from the moment I left the house to the moment they dropped me off in the driveway. Wow. You know, uh, to the point I woke up in a, in a, in the hotel room, in the shower, it fully clothed that they put me in, you know, and turned the shower on and left me there. You know, things like you would, you, you laughed about the year later. I remember when he did that. I remember when you did this and all our friends together, you know, and it started with those, but then, then I could, I kept telling myself, you can control it. And you thought you, and I thought I could. So alcoholism gets to the point to where you, it fools you. It's a, it's a baffling, baffling disease. At that point that, that you're talking about then in your, in your life, did right. you think it was a problem then? Did, did it no. even cross your mind at all? No, because I could stop. I could not get up. I could get up and, and not drink the next day. I could not drink for a week, you know, and I could stop, yeah. you know, and I could go in there and say, okay, well, I don't want to drink tonight. I got to check right tomorrow. Or, uh, you know, I, I, I just wouldn't do it. I, I, I remember seeing guys I flew with that would get the minis off the airplane. You know, in the corporate world, you can get them, sure. you know. And yeah. they'd drink three or four of them before they come to dinner. And I'd be like, man, this guy's, this is crazy. I drink two or three beers, yeah. you know. And yeah. it's a progression. And, you know, as, as we go on with my story, I, I'll, I, I'll kind of lead up to the, how, the, the, how the progression works. Because, you know, it went from that drinking, like, like you said, not, I didn't think it was a problem. You know, even though my, my, my first wife thought it was, you know, but I didn't listen to her at all. I didn't listen to anybody. Yeah. You know, you know, but I, I never got a DUI. I never got, a, you know, a, I never got, a, you know, a domestic alcohol. I got in a big bar fight in Nantucket once, you know, uh, while well, I was at work. Oh, you know, uh, you know, drunk. And I didn't start it, though. I know that for a fact, because the police report has me listed as victim. So and that, that was not me. Um, so at this point in your life, you could stop for periods of time, but always looking forward to the next opportunity to be able oh, to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And how did and that then, progress? You know, at, at this point, where were you? Were you flying corporate already at this point? Uh, at this point, I was I was flying. You no, know, I was already done with the corporate. I was back in Tennessee from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. working for the fractional, one thirty five fractional operation. Mm-hmm. And it the, back then we had uh, dedicated airplanes. Right, I was assigned a jet, and if that jet was down for maintenance, I was also down for maintenance with it. Oh, okay, and. And, it, and that turned into, well, we had certain bars at maintenance bases that we would go to. And we had all the pilots that were there would go there and we would drink heavily, you know, uh, to the point of, you know, <laughs> pushing guys back in shopping carts to the hotel, you know, <laughs> things like that. It was, you know, it was, it was like, it was a, it was a big party, but that's about the time I would say 2005, something where maybe four where it started turning into. I looked forward to the morning drink when I didn't have to go fly. Mm-hmm. You know, I would look, Hey, you know, I don't have to do anything today. I can get up and I can have a beer. It's nine o'clock. On, it's, 
hey, I got to start grilling out for the 12 o'clock game on Saturday. I'll start grilling out at nine o'clock and start drinking beer at nine o'clock. Yeah. Cause I'm grilling. See how that works? Yeah. Yeah. Always, always, uh, always five thirty somewhere kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Any opportunity. I'm, I'm grilling so I can drink beer and nobody get mad at me. Right. Yeah. Nobody, right. you know, and or I'm going to this party or we're going camping or, and it started where everything evolved around alcohol. Uh, and then, you know, it turned into, uh, you know, I got in trouble, you know, I did some stupid stuff, you know, with other women and I was not faithful to my first wife. And because alcohol was giving me, you know, was involved in a lot of, a lot of those stupid decisions that I was making with other women on the road, mm-hmm. not, not at home. And right. it, it just turned into where it was part of my life for almost everything. And as it went on in time, we're getting closer and closer that I got, you know, I got divorced from my first wife and then I was free of the marriage. So that put me into a totally free mode. I, I got my own house. I lived by myself and do whatever I wanted. And that turned into a very bad combination of David by himself with no checks yeah. and balances at home. Yeah. Yeah. You know, living down the road from a bar that I lived in, you know, yeah. Uh, the opportunity and, was there and there was, yeah, like you said, no check and balance to, to stop you. No one saying, Hey, nobody to give you a hard time. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then getting the, the depression, the loneliness and trying to fill this void in my, in the, in, you know, in my soul that couldn't be filled by any, any accomplishment at work or any, anything else, you know, of just being, utterly alone it seemed like yeah and that i felt comfort being at the bar with these guys with people i thought were my friends you know uh and shooting pool and playing poker you know i met my 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 current wife at a at a, one of these bars and we drank together you know she's you know a, a wonderful woman you know just like my first wife was a wonderful woman uh but my my current wife you know she had a, a son a young son and he was old enough where he could, you know, he could be by himself. So she, and she kind of missed some of her early twenties, you know, raising her son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just got divorced. So now we were kind of free. So we partied our butts off together. We had a, you know, it didn't really help, <laughs> help my, my situation. Is it my, as I slowly re- progressed down the road of alcoholism, of getting worse. So how how worse. old were you at this time now? Oh, uh, back in that day, I see I'm 48 now. I was about. 37, 36. Okay. I would say when it really, really started getting bad. So 35. Yeah. Um, and it started getting even worse. I mean, up to the point of, of drinking almost every day, you know, not when I had to go do something, when I go home and home and fly or go fly with a student at home, but it was the first thing I did when I got home. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then, uh, my wife got pregnant with twins and we lost one of the twins at birth. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, that's oh, yeah. At five years ago, that's tough. Uh, the the girl survived. She's and she's and her brother passed away, but she was a micro preemie. She was born at one one pound. Uh, wow, ten ounces at twenty. She was born at twenty three weeks. She's and a she fighter. Spent five months and then yeah, man, yeah. she's great now. She's perfect now. Uh-huh. Uh, but I went into total just meltdown mode after that, and it was uh, sure. To the point where I, it was getting to the point where, yeah, that's tough. I got to the point. I got to the point as as I went through after that happened to me. 
I went through a period where I thought I need to take some time off at work. So I went to a, uh, a therapist and talked to him about my feelings and lied to the therapist. He goes, how much do you drink? I said, I only drink a couple a day, sure which, is, which is wrong. Because at this point in time, I was up to a case of beer a day and a half a bottle of vodka. Wow. At home. Yeah. I mean, wow. sometimes a full bottle of vodka a day. And, and wow, what did that, what led to that? It was a feeling of you have all this stress that you're trying to manage in your life, so much depression to deal with, which in your, on your best day would be a challenge, let alone when you've had a long history of, of drinking. Right. And and as you're mentioning, like that kind of opened the floodgates to now I'm going to take some time off work and regroup and I'm going to just now I have all the opportunity to start drinking heavily. But to drink a half a bottle or a full bottle of vodka and a case of beer, how do you just not pass out and, and how do you function and how does that make it that does it does a numbness is it? Uh, yes, exactly. It's a numbness. And it's the, there's that word again, function, right? Function and functional. I was not functional. I could, I could get up and make, I could get up and cook breakfast for the kids in the morning, but I never went to sleep. So that's really the biggest fallacy right? that we've heard here for those that have not been through this program or not experienced it, to, to use the word function or functional and alcohol or alcoholism in the same sentence, really, it's an oxymoron, isn't it? Yeah. I agree. I think it is. You know, I've, yeah. some of the uh, some of the healthcare professionals out there may disagree with me, but uh, I look back on my time as a you know as an active alcoholic at my worst. My life was totally non-functional. It, I, my sole purpose in life was to make money so I could buy something to drink. Hmm. You know, uh, wow. it, it it had gotten to the point where I was trying to or I was trying to allude to a little bit earlier as 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 it went on. After the after that traumatic event with my child, and my drinking got and I did I took that time off work. I was looking for an excuse for somebody to tell me why I felt this way, why I felt so depressed, why I felt so alone. And when I wasn't, you know, I wasn't alone. I've still got my family. I got my friends, you know, and why I felt alone in a group of people, you know, why I my friends were treated me differently. You know, why the, the gentleman that has all those cool airplanes that I flew didn't want me to come back to the hangar anymore. I didn't understand why, you know, in my brain, it was, well, he's got bad judgment. You know, he's got, he doesn't understand my talents that I bring to this hangar, what I can do for him and fly his airplanes and keep them and help keep them maintained and flying and taking them to air shows. Mm. You know, how dare he tell me I can't fly his airplanes anymore. Did that create? You know, that's how an alcoholic thinks. Did that create some kind of like an aggressive mentality towards those people that are around you? That no, 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 it didn't. There's no, there's no aggressive. They when they said that, I just left the anger, and I thought, well, great, I don't have to go back to that hangar anymore. I can stay at home and do what I want. Mm. You know, uh, here's the thing that one of the things that you would think would make somebody open their eyes is that my son, um, he's 12 now. When he was 10 years old, well, nine and a half, 
he was over here uh, for his weekend with me, and he said, Daddy, I don't like you when you're drunk. I don't want to come back here anymore. Oh. And I said, okay, call your mom. And his mom came and got him, and he left. And I didn't care. Yeah. I didn't. I was like, great. I don't have to watch that kid. I can drink some more. Oh, gotcha. It is. And, you know, he said he'd come over if I quit drinking. I said, nah, don't worry about it. The drinking was more important to your yeah. mind, to your, yeah. as they call the middle mind or, or that part of your brain that says, I got to, this is me. This is why yeah. I'm. Like, like, well, okay. I don't have to do it. it it's, and, you know, I, and I was extremely sad about it. I was extremely upset about it. But my alcohol said, well, you know what? You can't get it back. You might as well keep drinking. Yeah. That's what the yeah. disease said to me. You might as well keep drinking. And I did. And I kept drinking. You know, and what got me to the point to where I did, uh, it's a sequence of events. Is that with the last, with the last job, I had a check ride. Uh, this uh, 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 the six months check. Mm-hmm. We did ours in the sim. We did one with a check airman, and then we did one with the, uh, in the sim. And I was paired up with a gentleman who was also a drinker, and we uh, we stayed at the hotel at the uh, I call the home homeboy suites there in Dallas, Texas. And <laughs> the, home, the homeboy suites has they got free they got free drinks from five to seven every day oh, Monday yeah. through Thursday, <laughs> and. That was our warm up. Two hours of drinking, then dinner, you know, and and then because uh, we didn't have to study for recurrent back then, man. We were in an airplane for so long, you just yeah. did it, right? Yeah. Well, I went to the sim the next morning, hammered. All right, I was. I made him drive. I couldn't drive. I was I was so hungover and so drunk, I couldn't drive. Hmm. I went into that check ride. We had, we did it back then with the oral first, and then to get into sim. Yeah, I passed that check ride into oral with flying colors, like it was nothing. Now, think about what that did to my alcoholic brain. Oh boy, it's another s- step. See, yeah. you were so bad, you shouldn't even been walked out of the room. But you still did it. You still went out there and flew a perfect yeah. check ride. Yeah. The instructor told me, he goes, that's one of the best check rides I've ever seen. Oh, boy. So I said, oh, no. And we drove back. We were done at noon. Guess where we went? Go to celebrate. The bar. Right yeah. To the bar. Yeah. Yeah. And so fast forward about a week and a half, I went back to work. I met up with a friend of mine in a hotel uh, in New York. We drank all night. The next morning, I wake up, like, I'm calling sick. That's what I said to myself. I'm going to call sick. And, some, and some, something in my head said, no, man, just get up and take a shower. You'll be okay. So I got up and took a shower. I got out of the shower, man. I feel like crap. No, man, tell you what. Why don't you go ahead and shave and brush your teeth, pop in a mint, say how you feel. So I shaved. I did all that. And no, I think I should just call sick. And then, then it said again, hey, why don't you put your uniform on? You'll be okay. You've done this a million times. So I put my uniform on, got my stuff, walked out of the front the door, walked down, got into the elevator, went downstairs to the lobby. As I was walking out of the elevator, I tripped over the stairs and down. I tripped over nothing. 
in the elevators and almost fell down like a drunk oh. because I was, I was drunk. Wow. I turned around and got back in the elevator, called sick, scared to death that somebody had seen me because that, that lobby was full of pilots. Hmm. So I went and hid in my room for about uh, two hours. And, uh, what any alcoholic does? I went and found the bar. And I sat there all day. Yeah. And then I, I came home petrified that somebody had seen me. I was going to get caught. Somebody, and I had this, the one thing that was missing from my life showed up. God showed up for me. And I, I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm either going to kill myself because I was, I was at the point of, I was suicidal. You know, you know, I was thinking about it. So you're suicidal if you even think about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't do this anymore. And I had a good friend of mine that had went to the HEMS program at the fractional, and he was working for a legacy carrier now. And he had been talking to me for about a year and a half about going to get help. He knew I needed help. He's an alcoholic. I couldn't bullshit. I, I couldn't yeah. get anything over on him. Yeah. And I called him up and sat in my bathroom one night and said, I can't do this anymore, Michael. I need help. He goes, great. Stay on the line. I call you. He goes, great. I'll call you back in 20 minutes. 20 minutes later, he had me a bed in a rehab center in Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Thank and God I for you. Friend. I, yeah. Because yeah. he's, he, he's really in touch with the HEMS program. And uh, so my wife and I jumped in the car. <laughs> I, I can laugh about this now, but I had a, a nine pack of, uh, pints, you know, those, those pints in the aluminum cans. Yeah. And I had a half a bottle of vodka and I took it with me and drank it on the way to Knoxville. <laughs> <laughs> One last hurrah. <laughs> well, we're going to do this. Might as well go out swinging. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> my, <laughs> go down swing. You know, my last beer, my, my last beer was sitting in the, in our, in our truck. My wife is sitting over there outside smoking a cigarette with the, uh, the attendee that was going to check me in waiting on me to finish my beers. And that was my last beer. So as I, as I walked into rehab uh, and was there for 30 days, you know, but wow. yeah, that, that was what, that's what, that, that's, that's how the, the, the drinking went for me, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one story that that's my story. That's how I, that, that's, that's how I, I just couldn't do it. And, Oh, and I mentioned sure that because that's what, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And the, the rehab, the fact that well, you mentioned, you said, well, I, I just, I found God and that was it. And I just said, that's it. I need help. And you reached out to the right person, you know, thank goodness for that. Um, well, let's like, it's not really, I didn't really find God because I wasn't looking. I wasn't looking for God. Is that I had nowhere else. I, I just, I was just standing there totally lost, totally miserable, totally, you know, didn't know what to do. And I felt the presence of, of, of something, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some people, you know, God is not, not their thing. That's fine. It was something other right. than myself. Mm-hmm. And like, and it's a, but he is a big part of my recovery now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was just a nudge, you know, the nudge to get me going there. So, and it was amazing, though. It was an amazing feeling. It, even that, I can still remember the whole thing of standing there when I said, I need help. It's just like, 
a lot of things is melted away immediately. Is that yeah. almost like, uh, and I've heard people say this before, is that at yeah. that point, uh, when you admit that you need the help, does it feel like just tons of weight are now lifted from your shoulders because you've admitted? Is that the way it works? Yeah, well, you, you, don't, have, you don't have to live the lie anymore. Yeah, the you, lie. You don't, have to, you don't have to lie to yourself. You don't have to lie. I never had to lie to my wife or my parents or my friends. They all knew I was a drinker. Uh, yeah. Right. But I, it's the fact of lying to myself that I had this, that yeah. I could control this. You know, the fact that I am, I am completely and totally 100% incapable of controlling my alcohol consumption. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to alcohol because once I have one, I want it all. Yeah. Cause that, that was, that's my problem is uh, some, some, you know, uh, most companies have the employee assistance program you know, that you can yeah, call. EAP, sure. EAP, right? Yeah. Well, I called the EAP five times, and each time they told me that I might be an alcoholic, and I kept saying, "Oh, your guys are full of crap." You know, and the one time the EAP was right, this this older lady, really sweet woman, said, "David, she goes, I want you to do this. I want you to get eight minis out of the airplane." So I told her all about where I got my liquor on the road. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't get all from the on the road for the airplane. I bought a lot of it myself too. But you know, but there, goes, yeah, there was a free opportunity right there. Yeah, yeah, and it it said, uh, "She's I want you to drink five of them and leave three of them in your bag tonight, and call me back when you leave them in there." Well, I tried that four times, and I always drink all eight of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, gotcha. could, you couldn't, and, yeah, you couldn't stop. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. But the thing, I, I, that's one thing I would stress with, with the employee assistance program, the people you talk to there, they don't know anything about the HEMS program. Okay. And if, and, and they can steer you down the wrong path and they're trying to do good. They're not bad people. I'm not talking down about the AP program whatsoever. Is that they're not HEMS trained. And they really could lead you down the wrong path. That's why the HIMSS program is there. Why the, the union is there. So let's talk a little bit about the HIMSS program. You know, we've mentioned yeah. it before on the show. We've, we've had uh, a HIMSS director on the show. If you go back and listen, right. uh, as a, an episode called uh, A Journey of Giving Back. Uh, wonderful episode. I learned a lot at that interview. Um, about HIMSS, the Human Intervention Motivation Study, uh, is specifically for commercial pilots and coordinates the identification, the treatment, and the return to the cockpit for impaired aviators. At what point did you migrate to be involved with that? Was it through the rehab process when you checked yourself in and then you, you knew you had to? Or was your friend who helped you along this process the one that guided you? Or did you just know? Well, my my buddy, my friend that guided me through the process, since fractional, the fractional company didn't have a HIMS program mm. uh, that was written down or anything. It was just kind of word of mouth. So he knew uh, which facilities the FAA uh, would use used, and and they kind of, you know, they have a certain amount of them around the country that understand they had have a HIMS director. On the, at the facility for the pilots, where I went, uh, a lot of a lot of places, a lot of airlines send their people there. There were leg, there are a lot of legacy guys there, a lot of regional guys there, a lot of mm-hmm. 
you know, a lot of pilots were there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, from all aspects, from cargo to legacy, you know, to packs. So, but once you get, you know, once you get there, they they know you're a Hems pilot, and you are immediately wrapped up in, in, in their blanket, right? Of of, I want to say almost protection, you know, of to, to make sure that you get everything you need as a pilot to satisfy what the FAA wants to see in your recovery program. I see. The thirty days you have to spend thirty days there. Uh, and that it has to have a certain aspect. It has to have some computer testing that you have to do uh, that get your brain so you can practice these computer tests, these cognitive tests that you have to do later on down the road in the process. And it, and they break down the process for you. Because as pilots, you know, we, we want to know what the checklist is. Mm-hmm. I have a problem. Okay, I have a drinking problem. I have admitted it now. Show me the checklist so I can get back in the cockpit. Nah. That's exactly what every pilot thinks. So, and the, the questions are always, well, when can I get back in the cockpit? Yeah. That, that question comes about 10 minutes into the process, right? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, that's the reason why you're there is to get back in the cockpit. No, it's not. No, no, it's not there. Oh, okay. that is, that's, that's the, that is the thing that's the farthest, should, should be the farthest from your mind, but it's okay. not. You're there to you get, learn that till later. You're, yeah, you you get you're in the program because you've admitted that you have a problem. You're looking for help. You want to get sober so that you can have a life and you can and you can get back to as we were talking about earlier, getting back to functioning, and so that you can have the privilege of being an aviator and possibly get your licenses and your medical back so that you can get back in the cockpit. But you're doing it for exactly you. that, right? Yeah, you're right. Exactly. You, you look, you want to come back and be a, and be a functional, normal person, right? That's yeah. an alcoholic, right? I'm a functional alcoholic right now. Uh-huh. Okay. Right now I'm a functional I alcoholic. I get it. Okay? Yep. I am an alcoholic that doesn't drink. All right. You know, that understands my limitations when it comes to drinking, mm-hmm. which is, okay, I can't, I can't. Got gotcha. you. Know, uh, but when, once you get into the program, like you were, what you asked him a few minutes ago, is you, you start slowly understanding that you're not there to learn to fly airplanes again you're, or to get the opportunity to do it. You're there to make sure you don't die. As simple as that, that you don't kill yourself by drinking too much. Yeah. Because nobody shows up to rehab in, on a good streak. <laughs> you know, you're not having right. a good day when you show up to rehab. Right. You know, because, right, because it's the term that livers, lovers, lawyers, and employers get you into rehab most of the time, right? Livers. A a guy will get a DUI. Lawyers. Yeah, livers. Yeah, livers, lovers, lawyers, and employers. Wow. Yeah. You know, somebody gets a domestic. They get in a fight with their wife, and they hit her in the face. He gets arrested, and he's drunk, so he gets charged with a a PD and he blows a, you know, 0. 0.0, whatever, you know, 0. 0.10, whatever. Yeah. Well, the FA is going to want to know about that. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, God forbid a DOT failure, which involves not only, uh, you know, your loss of your medical is, is gone, but now your licenses are gone. Mm-hmm. You know, that turn that, you know, that turns into a whole nother fiasco. And then if you want to add on to this, think about a legacy cruise that fly overseas and then 
have to go back to that country they they were busted in and do a a year in prison and then come back here and start the hymns program oh wow, wow. Uh, I, I, I had, uh, multiple meetings or with some guys at another treatment facility after I was out that that happened to them. They had to go back and serve time because they were arrested in a foreign country for being intoxicated, showing up at the gate. Yeah. And foreign countries take it extremely serious. And, you know, I've read a few books about it. It's, you know, you, you think you have it bad here. Oh, I may, I may have to lose my medical or my license and take my ratings over again and go through a program. But right. you go into a, a foreign country and there's more stringent, usually twice yes. as more stringent than we are. And they don't joke around. You got to do a year in, a, in an international facility. You got to do a year in a Turkish prison. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> Oh my you God! See a grown man naked. Yeah. <laughs> That's one time. And, yeah. <laughs> well done. Stick around. We'll have more about David's amazing journey right after the break. How does the program work? Once you're in the program, are you in it for life? Uh, no, that's a misconception mm-hmm. with that. Uh, so what happens is you, when you go through rehab, you'll you'll come out of rehab with with the basic tools and understanding of your disease. And it's a disease, no matter what anybody says. It's right. a disease. Mm-hmm. And then you'll you'll have a you'll have a checklist. Now you say, okay, go home. And you have to what they, you have to do what they call ninety and ninety. You have to do ninety meetings in the rooms in ninety days. So oh. for ninety days straight, and you have to document it. Uh, you will then you'll be given a uh, a list of the hymns AMEs. There's 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 just a few uh, you know scattered about the country are hymns AMEs that are trained for the FAA to be administrators of the hymns program for the FAA. Uh, you'll be given, you'll meet, you'll meet up with him and you'll start an aftercare. You'll go to an aftercare group, which is outside of the rooms, but part of your recovery. And it, mine consists of a group of guys uh, and gals that are pilots, lawyers, doctors, nurses, you know, with uh, alcohol, uh, alcoholism and addiction to pills and, everything you can think of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a requirement. You go, you do those, uh, at least once a month. I go to, I go as many as I can. I really enjoy my aftercare group. Uh, my sponsor is actually is in my aftercare group. Uh, so, and then when you go meet with your hymns, AME, he'll lay out what he wants to see from you. Uh, when it comes to reports that you have to get from, uh, your sponsor, you have to get a report from a, a, like a peer monitor later on, but that comes later. And then he'll set you up with a psychiatrist and a psychologist you have to go see. When once he determines that you're ready to go see the psychiatrist, you have to do an evaluation. And they evaluate you about a two-hour process of sitting down with a psychiatrist. 
and then you get then you get scheduled for your cog test, the cognitive testing, which is an all day event of some of the craziest tests you've ever th- thought of. Really? Uh, you know, really? uh, yeah, it's. I'll give you an example. One of the tests is a math test. I, I don't have the name of it right in front of me, but they read you a series of numbers, and you have to remember them and add them up, and then continue to remember them and, and add them up. Uh, you have to get on the computer screens and do uh, two or three things at the same time on a computer screen and a lot of memory testing and a lot of blocks that, you know, have different colors on them. You got to make certain shapes. It takes all day. It's a, it's a, you walk out of there thinking you'll never fly again because you just <laughs> feel like a moron. <laughs> I mean, you really do. I had to go back and take it again because I didn't get high enough score the first time. Which is a which is a common thing. I thought I was done when he told me to come back, and uh, he said, "No, it's normal. Don't worry about it." You know, he, he said, "Come back in two months," and I came back in two months and passed it with no problem. Uh, so once you get those hoops done, and you talk to your psychiatrist again, and you go to your AME, and he actually issues you a issues you a medical that he doesn't sign. So and you and you so you have. The, the COG test results, you have their psychiatrist review, you have your uh, all your paperwork from your uh, rehab center, you have your aftercare, uh, uh, aftercare administrators, all his reports to you about you, all put in this one little bow, in this one little bow, and they send it off to the FAA. Hmm. And it goes to Washington, D.C., they review it and approve it, then it goes to Oklahoma City, they review it and approve it. And then you would think that you would have a marching band and, you know, walk down the street with your medical held high on a big flagpole and say, come out here and get it, you know, yeah, congratulations. Well, it shows up in the mail unannounced, just out of the blue one day, hmm. you know, and you, and then bam, you got your medical back, you know, wow. you're expecting something else, but that's what you get. This is a, sounds like a relatively lengthy process. Yeah, it, it can take me between uh, eight months, nine months to a 16, 17 months. Oh, okay. It depends. It, it 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 all depends on the person and and their and their their story. You know, if uh, let's say somebody has a pending litigation for a, something they did where they were you know drinking and they had to go to jail or they have uh, a court date, the FA won't even start the review process to those court date. That's finished. It's over. Huh. You know, um, so it all depends on on your situation, but that shouldn't deter anybody from the fact is that it sounds like a lot of work and it is a lot of work and it is a huge challenge to, to get the FA to give you back your medical. It's a huge challenge, but I'll tell you this, if I had never got my medical back, but I was sitting here sober right now, it'd be worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I'd be, I, I would be dead. I'd be dead or I'd be alone uh, somewhere in a small, you know, cheap apartment on welfare, drinking, drinking my life away. Yeah. You know, because flying is 100% secondary to my sobriety. It's, it's 100% secondary because I spent too many years flying around this wonderful country, just waiting to land so I could go drink somewhere, you know, and not wanting to go, Fly, not want to be with my friend, family and friends, or if I did go with my family and friends, I was intoxicated. 
Yeah. You know, and that's back to this functional word. I was not functional. I was totally abnormal. Yeah. As a as a person. And that's I think a big fear for maybe somebody who is struggling with addiction um or think that they don't have a problem because like you mentioned maybe they're at that point in their life where they feel they can stop for 5 6 days when they're working flying and trying to get stuff done and then as soon as they're not they're taking that opportunity to to open a a bottle of beer or a bottle of booze or something or drugs or whatever they whatever their addiction is and i think there's a stigma against getting help because they feel like, well, if I admit I have a problem, I may not ever fly again and I want to protect. Exactly. And so, you know, it's good to hear that you went through the program. I know, I know there's example after example of, of people that have successfully gone through the program and they can fly again. And not only did you get your first class medical back, you actually progressed into a new job. And you went through the program and then got into Legacy Cargo. Right. Yes. That was not the plan at first. You know, my plan was to go back to the fractional, you know, where I'd been there. I I was comfortable. I was, you know, I knew, I knew that job back to back of my hand. I was very good at it. Mm -hmm. But the last three or four years there, I was a terrible employee. Think I was a terrible employee. You know, I was doing just enough. And, you know, and when I, because when I got my medical back, I sent them an email and said, Hey, I got it back. I thought they would be all happy because I had actually went up and talked to them in during the process about the HEMS program, starting the HEMS program there. And when I sent them the email, I got an email back that I was under investigation for uh, just some things they would, they, they thought I did wrong. and. We had lost our union up there also, too. They voted the union out. Mm. And uh, so I didn't have any. So basically, they said, uh, we're glad you got your medical back, and we're glad you're healthy, but we don't want you to come back. And I was like, well, hell, okay. That just blows my plan out of the water, you know. And so now I'm fresh fresh medical, you know, still pretty fresh in recovery, if you think about it. Only... uh, not even a year yet of, of being sober. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that was probably tough to take right off the bat coming out of yeah, the it program. A, it was a kick in the pants. I was upset. Sure. You know, and I, I was bound and determined not to drink over it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's not worth drinking over. Yeah. So I, I just buckled down and got a new job, you know, and did, did the best I could do, you know? Yeah. And I don't blame them before that. Cause they treated me with, they treated me really well. You know, I don't blame them. And if I was on the manager side, I'd probably fired. I would have fired me too. Yeah. Because of the way I was acting, the way yeah, I was, the way I was. So that's always a good question for an employee when, <laughs> when you know they're they're kind of a troublemaker. You know, you kind of ask them, "Hey, so how do you think you did?" You know, if you were rating yourself, <laughs> <laughs> that's always an honest question, and see how they answer it. You know, uh, but right. anyway, yeah, that's that's a tough position to be in. Yeah, it is, and I understand. And and they actually did me a wonderful favor, I think, because I went back to that same environment that I was that I, I that I was drinking in heavily. I knew how to, I, could, I knew what I could do and get away with, right? 
Yeah. So they did me a huge favor. You know, uh, the financial hole I got myself into is myself. It's, it's my thing. That's the one thing alcoholics don't ever, ever do is they, we don't take responsibility for our own actions. It's always somebody else's fault. Mm. You know, like when I was active drinking, I kept applying for check airman positions or IP positions. I never got it. And I was like, well, these guys just don't understand. They, don't, they just don't get it. Yeah. Why would they not want one of the best pilots they got being an IP or a check airman? Because you're a drunk ass. That's why. Mm. That's yeah. why. Because I was, I was an alcoholic. And everybody knew I was a drinker. You know, uh, my FOs would go get extra, you know, would get extra stuff. It was like everybody else did in the company. We all, yeah, everybody drank some of the minis, you know. Uh, you know, they knew they had to watch me at night. They would get me to my room. You know, it, it was just, that, that was not, that part, getting to your room and going out. See, uh, the last couple of years, I say about the last three years, I stopped going out with people when I was on the road ah. because nobody drank like me. I, if I went out with, if you said, Hey, Tony, David, we're going to go out and drink tonight. I would assume that you, Tony, are, are going to drink like I do. That you're, you are going to have four minis in your room before we meet downstairs. That you're going to, that we're going to sit at the bar at the restaurant. So I don't have to wait on the waitress to come and film and get me a new beer. Mm-hmm. I can get the bartender to do it immediately. You know, I, th- I thought, you know, and after I realized that people didn't drink like I did, I stopped hanging out with people. I was a slam yeah. clicker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would just stay in my room and I, I'd go out by myself and hope to God I could get back. You know, or I didn't forget where I was or forget what room I was in. Mm. And oh. I, you know, I've been going down the hallway, putting a hotel key in the door until I found it. Yeah. yeah I did you that know? when I'm sober. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. but, you know, and we've all flown with that like, uh, pilot that you you know you, you meet him for the first time. You get out there, you go on a nice layover, and you're like, "Hey, let's go get some wings and a beer." Okay, sure. And next thing you know, you're like, "I can't keep up with this guy." Oh, I you know. know? Yeah, so. That was me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I had a I had a guy like I had a guy. I've got a hymns uh, tie hat pin on my tie that says hymns on it. Because a lot of people think the hymns guys are the no fun police, you know. Oh, we can't talk about drinking around this, and that's where it comes. You, it comes back to the stigma of alcoholism, right? Of of I can't be, I can't come out as an alcoholic. People are going to shun me. You know, I've had people. You know, one of the guys was like, "Come on, you can you can come out." I said, "Well, I don't drink, guys, but you know, I go have dinner with you, but I don't drink." And then we got there, and he's like, "Well, you can have one, can't you?" Oh, jeez. And I didn't yeah. tell him I was in the hymns program yet. You know, I said, yeah. "No, I yeah. can't have one." I said, I said, I've never had one drink in my entire life. And he was like, what? I said, think about that for a second. Oh, and he goes, oh, I said, yeah, there you go. He got it. He understood what I was talking about. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, he goes, oh, are you? And I said, yeah, I'm in the hymns program. He's like, oh, okay. And then he went on and, and did his drinking, and he's, which is fine with me. I don't care. But yeah. the stigma of alcoholism. And addiction itself is one of the real big problems that, that we have in the pilot community. Because if you get cancer, or you, you know, uh, God forbid somebody gets cancer that you know as a pilot, you know, the companies, whatever you need, you go home, get better. Right. 
and they, they, they pour out emotions. You'll get cards from the company and everything else. But if you come out and say you're an alcoholic, that's not the yeah. case. Right. Yeah, liability now. Yeah. You're now you're a liability. And now I got to spend all this money on you to go out and get you sober. Where you, and unfortunately, the, the relapse rates, the success rates of the program is not that high, you know, but the success rate of the HEMS program is in the 90 percentile rate. Really? That's good to know. Yeah. Wow, that's the amazing. success rate in the, in the HEMS program is 90 something percent of success stories. That's a testament uh, to the program. That's a, a wonderful thing to hear. It is. And, and, and I, did, I did forget to mention something else about the HEMS program, about you said uh, for life. Mm. You're under monitoring once you get your medical back. You have to, you have to do some random tests. For, I have to do 14 a year okay. of when I'm home. You know, when I'm off duty, I have to get tested. Mm. I have to see a shrink once a year. And I have to see my HEMS AME twice a year. Ah, okay. You know, and, and I still have to go to aftercare once a month and go into the rooms uh, on a on a regular basis. You know, to have a good recovery program. Okay. Just you know, just it's stay to stay it in there. So, uh, and that oh, that lasts for as long as the FA wants it to. It could be five years. It could be ten years. But that can't be the reason you don't drink. Is that you're getting tested or you have to go and see a shrink? Right. That that's right? beside it's just, the point. That, that's, yeah. That's beside the point. Yeah. That's for the FAA to say, okay, we're, we're putting these, these uh, limitations on you or these guidelines you have to follow yeah. to keep your medical. That's their checklist. So, yeah, exactly. That's their checklist. Yeah. So um, you don't have, it's just not a lifetime ban thing at all. I see. You know, the hardest, the hardest, hardest part about the HEMS program, the absolute hardest part is sticking your hand up in the air and saying, I need help. Yeah. As as pilots, you and I, all three of us, think about that. If if I say I need help because I can't control my drinking, how are they how are they ever going to let me fly an airplane again? Yeah, I can fly a single engine ILS all day long with the autopilot off with a coke and right in my hand and just smile at the FO. <laughs> but all of a sudden, I need help because I can't put down this bottle of vodka. Yeah, yeah, you know. And, and there's a stigma, and I think the stigma comes from just the the ignorance of not knowing that this is a disease like we like we said on the onset of the show it's a disease and the more knowledge people have maybe the better they can understand that it is manageable it is not a career ender and we are we are humans we are people yes we're pilots we put wings on and you know some of us wear the hat some of us don't but we all wear the uniform and it's it's got we have to get past that stigma and realize yeah. that there is help out there. There are programs with just tremendous success rates, as you're mentioning here. And, you know, the HIMSS program is something that, you know, you can Google it, but it's, uh, it's available at himsprogram.com. That's H-I-M-S program.com. And that's a great resource to get started. Um, and yes. you probably have some, some other resources for us that, you can mention what do you what can you say about that well some of the resources i would reach out to if if you know anybody that is in recovery of any aspect you talk to somebody about about their their program Mm -hmm. you know you don't have to reach out to your peers or your chief pilots you know uh reach out to the eap employee assistance you know uh 
if you have any questions because the big the big term is a, is assessment right if you feel that you have a problem uh and that's the only person only person that can finally admit that you have a problem is you right so there are numerous places you can talk to your church you can talk to i mean i you know the 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 hymns program is a great is probably the best place to go uh, through the union through your union if you if you have one if you don't you know, call up just get on there and and the f a a can help they can send you to somebody to talk to <laughs> you know uh it, it's all about networking the thing is that you're not alone and that's one reason I'm being so open with my dis- discussions with my with my problem how much I did drink and how how bad it got for me is that you're not alone. I thought I was alone. You know, I thought I was uniquely unique alcoholic, right? When I'm sitting in a room full of pilots at rehab thinking, my God, you know, I you, know, you got F-14 guys sitting over here. You got 15-year captains at Legacy sitting here. You know, I got an astronaut sitting over here. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Buzz Aldrin, I know he's out in public, so I'll say his name, is in recovery. I mean, he's the second man to walk on the moon. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You know, we have we have to you have to drop it. Like, I spent years and years and years fighting the fact that I was an alcoholic, and I finally took. It, it, I finally had to stand up. I am. I'm not tooting my own horn, but as a person that stuck his own hand up and said I need help, is very rare. Mm-hmm. Most of the guys in the hymns program get forced into it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there's it, another thing we need to talk about too. The HIMS program is not an ASAP program. Oh, I've heard a lot of guys say, well, if I get in trouble, I'll just tell them I want to enter, enter the HIMS program and I'll get off scot-free. No, you won't. If, if the FAA designed this program for you to step forward and say, help me, they want you, they want you to tell them you're, that you're an alcoholic so they'll get you out of the sky. Right. It's right. for the safety of the American airspace, right? The safety of the airspace above us. Mm-hmm. They want you. It's designed for you to self-disclose and come and seek help. If they have to come get you, their process of getting in your medical back could be a little longer. Yes, you mentioned depending on how yeah. how you enter the program, you could be a matter of eight months or sixteen months or longer or maybe never. So maybe never. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's, it's, I think what we're getting out of this is what I'm hearing is it's important to get in early and get the help before it gets out of hand, before you're forced into it, because that is just going to help you in your recovery and help you in the process to achieve the goals that you may want to achieve, like getting a medical back or getting back in the air. Right. And and now listen, guys, uh, it may not save your career. You may never get back in the cockpit. Okay. It just made it, it, it just could happen. You know, mm-hmm. you, you could, you know, once you finally go to the doctor because your side was hurting because you drank for 25, 30 years and you got cirrhosis of the liver and you'll never get your medical back, but you'll be alive. Yeah. You know, you can fix your liver. You can, you can live a life. You can live a life, right? I, 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 don't, I don't care about you flying again. I want you not to die. I don't want anybody to die or suffer the, the horrific hellish world of alcoholism. It's yeah. horrible. It's mm-hmm. absolutely horrible. It, yeah. and, and it, but it makes you think. It's the only disease I know of that makes you think you don't have a disease. 
because it makes you think it's fun. We're having a great time. I mean, we're not. Yeah. And I've been in that hell and it's, and I, I just don't want anybody to go through it. And, you know, yeah. if they, if they can help it, I want to help, you know, I, I just want somebody to be, to be healthy and, and yeah. have success. If I can have success, if, if I can do it, good Lord, anybody can do it. You know, yeah. uh, David, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your journey in aviation. You know, I really do hope that this story will help someone out there, um, you know, get the help they need on the pathway to recovery. Uh, and, and I think it will, I really, truly believe it will. Your, your story is amazing. I'd like to, to keep going here and ask you a couple more questions uh, about yeah, go your ahead. journey. I got plenty of time. Um, it seems almost kind of obvious, but what have been some of the biggest challenges in terms of your aviation career? Uh, in regards to the HIMSS program? Or Not just in, tar- in, in, in regards to your career in general. Was it, was it that day that you realized that you needed help, or was it just something else along the way because from what we've heard you've really had a pretty fantastic experience out there uh, you know i always been i, I don't want to sound cocky but i'm a pilot so i do have a big ego uh it's in your dna really it's okay this. yeah <laughs> i've been i've always been really good at you know they like get in this airplane and fly it and i can just do it you know uh i've never been a good you know my worlds have always been bad, worse than my flying. You know, when I go to the check ride and fly, I can do all that really well. But I just got past the orals, you know, sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, uh, the biggest challenge in my career, yeah, was was putting down that ego and saying, I am not in control of this situation. Mm-hmm. I am, I'm pretty sure... In, in, in the aviation world of, of flying airplanes, I can control almost anything, all right, in the, in the airplane. I can get in there. I can handle the situation unless it's just catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And I had to – so I had to drop that mentality. I had to say, I can't control this anymore. To say, I'm beat. You've beat me. I have yeah. to give up. That's the hardest part of my, of my aviation career, saying, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. This, you know – this whole party mentality pilots are out there, you know, we're partying hard and we're having a great time. And, you know, we're hanging out with a 25 year old flight attendants every night and we're, you know, we're traveling the world and we're sitting on the beach and blah, 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 you know, and that, you know, I had that is a, I, I had to drop this, that mentality. You know, I had to drop that, you know, uh, the second biggest challenge was going to these training events that I just went through sober of yeah. showing myself that it's not the alcohol that kept me up. That got my, I guys, I had gotten so, uh, alcoholism comes with a lot of anxiety. I had huge amounts of anxiety to where I was scared to fly airplanes. I would get nervous in airplanes. Really? Especially when I was riding in the back of the airliners, you know, I would get anxiety attacks and, I'd never been scared to fly an airplane in my life, you know, and I started getting these anxiety attacks a while back and I couldn't explain it. So I thought, well, I, I, I just guess I need to drink some more. That's how it works, hmm. you know? And, and then I would calm down and, you know, I'd come home and I'd drink and I'd be fine. And I'd go to work. I'd be scared to death to go to work. It was the weirdest thing. 
Yeah. You know, so you had, you know, I really had, and, but to come in into these training events uh, and get the confidence that I could do it, not the alcohol was propping me up with, with false confidence that yeah. I could do it. I was smart enough and good yeah. enough to do it. And I went and passed the 747 typewriter. Yeah. Wow. You know, and I passed my OE, you know, and I went across the Pacific four, three times and, you know, and, and landed the 800,000 pound, well, 600,000 pound airplane. And, uh, and the, the, the Czech airman didn't take the airplane away from me. I was, ah, oh, this is awesome. You know? <laughs> well, I was going to say, you, you know, you did well if you could figure out Boeing's VNAV in the, in the first 60 oh, days wait. of flying it. Oh, wait a I, I, <laughs> I, I uh, the FMAs. I'm still like, what is this? What does this mean? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I, I kind of hit. You know, kind of hit me at vertical speed and just make it go away. Hey, you're you you're a success speed. story already because you you got it all figured out. <laughs> well, I, I know that the Felch button has saved me already a couple times. Yeah. So, uh, flight level change. It's, yep. It's like I don't know what's yep. going on. I'm not coming. You know, I'm not coming down very fast. I hell with it. Here, hit the Felch button. And the check in was like, "Yeah, that's right." I'm like, yeah. you know, but so yeah, so yeah, if we actually, talk- if we talked about your, you know, your biggest challenge, it sounds like, like this point, having a, a successful IOE trip, landing a, you know, 600,000 pound aircraft and retraining your ego to understand that it's not the alcohol that made you a good pilot. It's you that made you a good pilot. That's got to be the high point, right? Well, no, it's, no, it's not me. It, it's also my new faith, sound, found faith, right, in God. Oh, right? wonderful. I, I wouldn't yeah. be, I didn't do any of this. I'm where I am because God put me here, right? He allowed, you know, he allowed me the, the, the confidence to get through that training, right? It, it's not me. I didn't do it. And that's, that's one big thing that I've, I, I've accepted. And if somebody wants to think I'm some sort of religious crackpot, good. I don't care. You can think that all you want. Uh, but yeah, it's not me. Uh, you know, God allowed me to, this, this opportunity to do it. And I took advantage of it. And good for you, you know, you know, yeah. and that, that's one reason it did. And I don't care if, if, if you're an atheist and you come into the program, you have to find something that has a more power than you do Yeah. to help you. It could be, I don't care what it is. It could be your, your, your iPhone for Christ. I don't care what it is, but cause you can't do it as an alcoholic. You can't do it. You have no control. Even though you think you do, you don't, Yeah. yeah. you know, at, and that, that's what you have to realize. And what you said is retrain my ego. That's exactly a wonderful way to put it. That's exactly right. I had to retrain myself. And, and also have the confidence in myself. Along, that, that, I could, that yes, with, with this newfound help, instead of having a vodka to help me, I had a new spirituality to help me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, you know. that's amazing. That's an amazing story. I, I could... I mean, I have a good friend of mine that's kind of uh, uh, re-going through this same kind of stuff. You're you're just told us all. Uh, he's a he's an al- he's an alcoholic. He's an aviator. Um, you know, divorced three times, and um, he's a really good guy. But man, you know, I, everything you're talking about right now, I hear you know from him, and uh, you know, I've I really I'm gonna 
<laughs> mention it to him. Hey, man, there's this great thing called the Hems program. <laughs> Probably go uh, say hi to them. Um, cause, yeah, uh, well, yeah, I, I don't want him to, he's such a good guy at heart and, and everything, you know, that I don't want to see him or anybody else, you know, <laughs> get in trouble or, or hurt themselves or. Yeah. Timing is, is, is amazing, you know, and I really yeah. think that the universe is speaking to all of us <laughs> and the fact that here we are having this opportunity, you know, to speak with David today about his journey, the challenges he's had to To handle and to get a hold of, you know, this disease of of alcoholism that is this taboo in the aviation community. We don't talk about it. Oh, I'll just go have a couple of beers. Oh, it's okay. Um, but it's important, I think. And Rob, you're you're you've led me to this to this thought that we have to be here for each other. You know, I end the yeah. show every single show from from episode one to now with take care of each other. And I think it's so crucially important that we mention everybody probably that has been flying for a while, that is at this level in their careers, knows someone that is struggling, that maybe hasn't been through the program. And, you know, David, you said it's up to you. Uh, no one can, no one can, you know, flip that switch for you. You have to do it. You have to come to terms that it's time. And, and until you do that, unfortunately, it's just not, it's just not going to work. But yeah. the fact that you had a friend that yeah. was there for you when you made yep. that phone call is everything. Yep. And maybe you listening out there have a friend that is struggling and all it takes is maybe yeah. a phone call or a text or, or yeah. just to say, hey, man, I'm here. How's everything going? And if you need yeah. anything... Yeah. I'm that, here the way you. I look at it is, you know, number one, you know, if you're, you're, if you're their friend, what kind of a friend are you if you're not helping them, you know, especially in this situation in a situation like this, number two, dude, we got to share the same airspace <laughs> with this guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, that's another important thing. And, you know, if, if they're working for the same company as you are, um, you know, that's another potential, you know, you know, bad egg that can, you know, ruin or tarnish the reputation of other pilots at your, at your, uh, you know, employer. So, you know, and, and, and the list can go on and on and on, but, um, you know, those are just some of the things that, you know, I always think about number one, just, you know, if you're a friend, you know, I would want somebody to tell me, Hey, look, Rob, I got this great friend who <laughs> works at this place and, uh, we should go talk to him. You know, I would, that, you know, if I had a problem, that would be, but you know, obviously I'm not in that boat. So at least I don't think I am. I, I don't drink, <laughs> but <laughs> last time I had a drink was like three weeks ago and it was a one beer. And I was, I'm a one and done oh, myself too. Oh, I yeah, just, I, was I don't two like sheets into the wind. <laughs> I, I'm yeah, a cheap yeah. date. <laughs> that's, see, that's, yeah. that's, that's the difference between the alcoholics. Like when they asked me at rehab, when I checked in, they said, oh, David, how much do you drink? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, when you sit down to drink, how much do you drink? I said, all of it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was not, it was, it, she goes, what yeah. do you mean? I said, well, whatever amount of alcohol you put in front of me is what I would. Sure. Do. Yeah. That's serious. And, yeah. You're serious. But from an alcoholic's perspective, now, when it comes to friends, here's what an alcoholic will do to you. If you go to your buddy you're talking about earlier that you thought, you know, he is an alcoholic. 
three marriages and so forth. If you go sit down and talk to him and, and say, hey, you know, I think you have an issue. You have a problem. He's not going to, he's, he's going to say, okay, see you later. Thanks for your help. And he's not going to talk to you anymore. Yeah. He's, he's going to, because he, now you are getting in the way of his drinking. He's not going to be your buddy anymore. He, he won't be. I wouldn't be your friend. I, don't, I, I did that to numerous friends. Okay, really? Yeah. See you later. I stopped yeah, like hanging out with your him. son and everything. Yeah. Right. It's got to be on your own like, accord. Yeah. Right. Now, let me ask you guys a question. You sit down in the cockpit with a guy and he smells like alcohol. What do you say to him? You're looking a little sick today, but you want to call in sick? I would, yeah, I would, the, 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 first thing I'd say is it's time for us to have a talk. I need to talk to you out on the jet bridge or out on the ramp. Let's go. So you're outside of the cockpit, number one. Yeah. And, and then Good I'd call. say, look, man, I can smell you. If I can smell you, it clearly, you down here? <laughs> it's time, it's time. You know, you either go home sick right now and get help. If you want help, I'll, I'll make a phone call, but you're not flying with me and not today. Yeah. Get the help. Right. It's a good one. Because yeah, yeah, that's a, you, yeah. you can't go along with it because that's not, your life is at risk, not to mention oh, all the yeah. other responsibilities, the mountain of responsibilities that go along with it. But you also don't want to ignore it or tell them, call and sick, go home. Because yeah. you're not helping, you're just well, you're you're covering it up. You're putting a band-aid you're, on a no, problem. You're, a, you're so, an enabler. Yeah, now you're yeah. an enabler. Yeah. So you yeah, you, yeah. Need, yeah. you need to kind of put your foot down. Now, if they tell you to go f yourself, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Then that's well, gets to the point where yeah. it's an avalanche of problems. I got a true story yeah, that, about that almost very similar situation. Um, actually my buddy that we're talking about was working a trip. Um, this is when he was with Sandpiper and, um, went through TSA and got all the way to the gate. And one of the TSA agents said they smelt alcohol in his breath. Mm. So anyway, they got all the way to the cockpit, did the pre-flight and everything. And the, uh, Somehow the TSA notified the company. The company came down the jet bridge and he was like, I want a, a piss test right now. <laughs> you know, they confronted him. He's like, I want a piss test right now. And he's telling me the story. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, this is exactly my fear from my buddy is something yeah, this like this happening. Um, or, you know, there's worst case scenarios, but, you know, but he was telling me, he's like, dude, I haven't, I haven't had a drink in, four days. Cause I've been on this, you know, six day trip and everything and been working my butt off. And, you know, in my heart, I, I believed him. Um, and, um, luckily he did get, uh, you know, a, a blood and alcohol test right away and didn't have anything in his system. Um, so, you know, the, it was good to hear that he wasn't lying and, and all that stuff, but, um, you know, he was removed from flight without pay until, pending the further investigation mm -hmm. and when everything came back, you know, he was reinstated and everything like that, but Oh my gosh, you know, just to have to go through all that and hear about it, you know, I was like, Oh, so man. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's, it, that, that, real that's, world. A, that's a situation that, that uh, the pilots that we, that we have as a pilot group, our pilots have failed at is that we tend to cover our bases, cover our friends' bases. 
Yeah. Hey man, you just sit over there and do your uh, just do your job. I'll do everything. You just sit right. There. I've seen that before. Uh, you know, just hey man, just Cabin come on too. You know, just chill out. We'll get you through this. You know, uh, many of bad decisions have been made. You know, yeah. and and. and in the name of brotherhood, of, of, of camaraderie, I don't want to rock the boat. Sure. You know, the, the, the reason I asked that question about what, what would you guys say is, you know, there's all types of ways to say, look, you can, you know, the hymns program, you, you either, you, either you make a sick call and you call the hymn, you know, you can't, because you, you, we can't assess anybody. Right. Right. An assessment, you know, is a, I mean, how do you talk to somebody about getting assessed? Right. Sure. How do you say, Hey, you know, with the, in the in the air, in the airline industry, we, we may never see the guy for six months, a year, never again will we fly with this guy. Yeah, right. It's very hard to assess if somebody has an issue uh, as a non-professional. So, getting somebody to get assessed by a professional if they have an addiction problem, it, it, it's a hard it's a hard road to go down. The thing, if you think about it, yeah. You know, the thing with your friend about. I want the P test right now. I want to get, I want a breathalyzer right now. Or, you know, what happens when he, he blows or what if they blow it? 0.03, you know, yeah. or whatever it is, a 0.04, right. I'm sorry, 4.1. You know, what if that guy really, really does smell like alcohol bad? Yeah. And he, he tells you to, he tells you to F off. Well, now, you know, when that happens, that's when you have to just, he could be your best friend that tells you to screw off. Yeah. That's when you have to you have to say okay well I'm calling look either you call it the chief pilot or, or calling sick or I'm calling the chief pilot and saying you're drunk right I think the hardest scenario is when you don't know the person you're meeting them for the first time you get to the cockpit you're like hello captain or hello first officer and you introduce yourself yeah, you know, I mean, and now and now you're like this guy kind of smells like alcohol how do you approach that I mean it could have been Listerine for all we know we don't know. Uh, so, yeah, I know that, that's that's what the scary part of it is. Is what how, how do we how, how do you sit there and tell your peers to say, hey, this this is a problem in our industry. We have a this industry is prone to alcoholism and addiction. It is. It's just it's just a known simple fact that this is yeah. this industry is prone to that. Yeah. But how to how do we in in the cockpit successfully navigate a situation that you're speaking of? We don't. I don't know you from Adam. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. You, you know, maybe you have a slight speech, a, a slight, uh, you know, a speech impediment or something or, a, 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 you know, you have a, a you know, a, a immature trachea that you, that you were born with that you just talk funny. Yeah. You don't know, you yeah. know, right. that's one of the hardest problems about with this thing is that that's why most pilots end up getting put in involuntarily into the HEMS program. Yeah. Because. It had they they get away with it so you know that tire just didn't blow on that leg it blew on the leg you didn't drink that night <laughs> and that right. and that reinforces the fact that hey I can get away with this it's that hazardous attitude right it's that invincible you know yeah it, it's the normalization of deviation yeah of deviance no the normalization of deviance oh, yeah no, normalization of deviance yeah. yeah you've done it I I do it my yeah. way twenty thirty times it works out just fine yeah. but on that. 40th yeah. time you might end in a disastrous result or getting in a situation where now you are responsible for your actions. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's just, that, that's, that's why it's so hard guys. It's so hard to, uh, to counsel people or talk to somebody about, yeah. you know, about 
for this? You know, how do you do that? You're sitting there with 300 people behind you, 200 people. And you're up there looking at the guy thinking, what do I do? What call do I make? Yeah. You talk about a challenge and I've never been in that position. I hope I'm never in that position. Uh, that, that's just one of the hardest parts, the things we have to think about uh, as pilots, as professionals. Yeah. You know, um, here you are, you've, you've had this, uh, tremendous career, very inspiring. If you ask me that you've been able to overcome some, some major challenges and here you are, you know, keeping up with a very successful career at a position in a job that I'm sure has got to be one of the highlights flying that beautiful whale <laughs> across, you know, the, <laughs> the oceans out there. And so what's better now that you've experienced both flying people or flying boxes? I would have to say that those 20 years of flying people in the fractional industry was an amazing because we had such a unique opportunity to be so intermingled with our passengers. We worked hand in hand with our passengers and some of them were famous people. And some of them were just, you know, just rich, you know, had enough money to do it. And some of them were uh, what I call new money. You know, they, they just got it and they're all happy and giddy and it's this amazing thing. And it was great. Uh, and flying freight before now flying freight again, but flying freight in this capacity of the, seeing how much they can keep stuffing in that whale and, and filling it <laughs> how up. How many and, iPhones they can get in there. It's oh amazing, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. How many box, how many pallets of lithium batteries am I carrying underneath me? You know, oh, five, geez, that's scary. <laughs> that's scary. You know, uh, boxes and boxes of ammunition and missiles. Hoorah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, uh, I wouldn't say pastors, man. I, I, I enjoyed my time at the fractional uh, of, of working there because it was, it was myself, a first officer in an airplane and eight day, eight to 10 days of doing missions. And we never knew what we were going to do. Mm. And everything that happened is a fluid, dynamic, ever-changing environment that required out, out of the box thinking to accomplish well. And I like that. That was yeah. fun. Now I don't miss changing, doing the labs and throwing the bags and getting the catering <laughs> and, you know, and having to deal with sometimes with the one per 1% people that were just, you wanted to strangle. Yeah. You, know, you just wanted to. <laughs> I've heard uh, those stories. Our own uh, captain Roger has told me a few tales. Oh, I hate this ice. This is the crappy ice. I wanted the good ice. Oh, I know. And then, <laughs> you know, stinky ice. I, yeah. I had, you know, I had somebody throwing lemon at me because it was cut wrong. Oh God. <laughs> You know, and you know why, why is my car not pulled up to the airplane? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm still <laughs> driving the airplane. You know, it's just, but, but the, you know, but the flying uh, the cargo now in this new in this new job and learning all the new stuff I have to learn, especially the international flying over the, you know, talking to the Russians and the Chinese and the South Koreans and the Japanese and. and you know, that stuff is just, it's, it blows your mind the first time you're there. Yeah. But it's so, yeah. it, you know, but I would have to pick, you know, I would have to pick uh, yeah, that spot. You know, that's not even my favorite job. You want to know what my favorite job I've ever had is? For sure. What's that? Ever had. My favorite but down is that when I was in high school and in college, I was a whitewater river guide on the Okoye River. 
You know, cool. I started when I was a kid, I was about 16, 17 years old, uh, guiding the Okoy. That was the f- best job I ever had. I loved yeah. that job. And that job got me prepared to be a professional pilot. How so? Because I had a new group of, I had a new group of paddlers in my boat every time. So you didn't know what you were going to get, right? If they could paddle, if they couldn't paddle, mm-hmm. if they were going to freak out or if they, you know, <laughs> what was going to happen. The river changed every time you went down it, right? You had some more, less water, more water. Uh, you know, you had more rafts. It was just a, a challenging environment that could hurt you if you didn't do it right. Yeah. So I think that that really got me ready to be a professional pilot. And I've said that at an interview, multiple interviews when I was, that, that's my favorite job. I love that job, you know? Wow. And you know, flying airplanes is my passion and I love it. But that job was that was so fun. Plus, it kept you in shape. Now I'm now I'm fat and old. Back then, I was great, you know. <laughs> well, we've talked about <laughs> your favorite uh, job. What about your favorite airplane? Yeah, my favorite airplane is a 1927 Fairchild 71. Oh, Fairchild. <laughs> yeah, it's a. If I don't you look even it know up, what that is. <laughs> I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, if you look, gorgeous. Go to Google and look and put in Fairchild 71, and you'll see a, a blue and white one with Pan Am on it. Mm-hmm. And it's a. Uh, it's 50 foot wingspan, 36 feet long, 600 horsepower radial on it. Uh, and it was one of the airlines. It was delivered to Pan Am Airlines back in 1927. And I, I got, to, I get to fly that airplane. I got to fly it around. It's not flying right now, but I got to fly. That's my favorite airplane I've ever flown. Yeah, I think I have a, a model that I haven't even put together yet. Uh, I'm saving it for retirement. <laughs> I've got models of airplanes, <laughs> you know. Well, you have uh, to look it up. Yeah, if you look up Fairchild seventy one, it's it's it's. I can send you some pictures of it. It was on a couple of magazine covers. We took it to Oshkosh and Sun and Fun. Yeah. Uh, well, the question is: the one that you fly is it on floats or do you have? Oh, a, I see it here. Uh, no, the, uh, the the one the one on floats is called the, it's that's the Super Fairchild. That's a different one. Uh, they they have put the seventy one on floats before. It they, they turned they ended up being a lot of. Uh, uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, there you go. A lot of glare yeah. in that picture there, yeah. but yeah, I just found it. Yeah, it's super that's it. nice. Wow, big radial yeah, engine. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, 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 those radial engines are wonderful to sit behind, man. They're great. When you look They're at old black airplanes. and white movies. That's you know the uh, the original airlines. That's yeah, that's what see. that is. Yeah, yeah. This air, you know, this airplane. Uh, isn't that it, it actually went to the Casablanca airplane? Isn't it? Uh, is that a I don't one? remember. I don't think. So. I don't think so. I no, that was a multi. I think that was an Electra. Oh, uh, I think it was Electra. Yeah, yeah Electra. That, wow. That, that airplane. That airplane actually went down to South America for Pan American Airlines to do some, uh, uh, to proving runs in South America when Juan Trip ran Pan Am. Oh, a lot of so, history. Yeah, it's a lot of history. It's great, but that's my that's my you know but my my favorite jet though is the seven four, so. Yeah, uh, no I've only comparison. got fifty. I've only got 50, fifty hours in it, but that thing is that's a remarkable machine. Yeah. Did you like the Phenom? I did. I did. I did like. I didn't like how small the cockpit was. I'm six three. Yeah. So, but uh, it's an amazing performer, and it it it, it exceeded its numbers. Uh, it had wonderful baggage capacity, and the passengers loved it. Yeah, but the seven four, huh? That's your favorite. Oh my God! I cannot. I cannot begin to explain. Even though I'm just scratching the surface of my experience in that airplane, yeah. I mean, we 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 flew from uh, Cincinnati to Incheon and didn't even top it off. Wow! Couldn't even imagine. 
Wow. You know, I I had never flown, you know, as a pilot for a 7-4. Unfortunately, it just was not in the cards for my career. I did sit as a passenger as a young child many, many times. Every summer I'd go to Italy <laughs> to go and spend time with grandma and grandpa. And I spent many times on in the back of a 747. But my highlight was United before they got rid of their 74s. I actually got to sit in the jump seat commuting home from Chicago to San Francisco in a really? 747. Wow. And what amazed me was how quiet that cockpit is. And yes, you're high up. It's like you're in a, what, third floor of a building when you're looking down. Taxing. Like 75 feet or something like that. It's amazing. Yeah, it's four stories. Four stories. Wow. But what was amazing was when it was time for takeoff, set thrust, and I'm looking at the engine instruments like, are, are they spooling up? <laughs> <They're> so quiet. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah, it, well, with me, when I, when I first, when I first flew it, I was sitting there in the right seat for the observation, you know, when I was doing PM stuff on the first, very first leg, you're busy. So you're not really paying attention there. You know, you're, you're trying to keep up. Yeah. But when I first flew it and, you know, the captain, you know, captain did the power, pushed it up and hit the auto throttle buttons. And I could feel it moving and I could hear the motors, but he said 80 knots. And I looked outside and I'm like, we're not moving. <laughs> that's so big yeah that's what she said and he goes look out the right way look out your window real quick and i looked out the window and the hangers are just flying by you know i'm like oh okay you know and then your reference for speed is different because they're so high up it is it was amazing and i rotated and did what you know and it was like okay it, wow. it works the same. It's it's just adjusted jet. Oh, it, you know, it's just it an airplane. It handles amazing. When we were coming in for a landing in San Francisco, it was I mean, they were the pilots were were kind enough to kind of talk me through kind of what they were doing when they could. And what I did notice is on finals, they were handling that bird and it was so responsive. It was like flying a 172. Oh, it was it's it's an, it handles so Well, I tell you I had to do a VOR approach with a, a side set to a runway at Osan, South Korea. And we, we broke out and, and it's time to scoot over to the other runway. And it did it like a one second. I just turned the yoke a little bit and it just whoop, right over there. Like it was nothing. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> you know, but it, uh. it, it was, you know, but it's just, you know, it, it's, it's just a remarkable thing. And, and it's, it's amazing that, you know, I got to, I got to, I'm here doing it. I, it's a, I, you know, yeah. yeah, I should be dead. I should be, you know, I should be dead. <laughs> yeah, for for the copious amounts of alcohol I put in my system over all those years, you know, and uh, it's an amazing thing. You know, it, it's wonderful to talk about these airplanes, and it's wonderful to say, yeah, I, I should, you know, I, I'm lucky to be here, but I'm sober, and that's the number one fact about it, is that I have to think if I wouldn't, if I wouldn't, if I was to go out and have one drink. One beer, which I could never do because I, I could never have one. But I would be back in rehab and I'd have to start this process all over again. Yeah. 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 If I wanted to continue to fly, you know. And the thing is, I, I don't know if I have another recovery in me. I know I have a lot of drunks left in me. I don't know if I have any recoveries left. Mm-hmm. Enough strength to get through that. Yeah. And you have to, you have to put that in perspective. As yeah. an alcoholic, I have to put that in perspective that nothing is worth uh, being exactly. drunk over again because you work so hard to get here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
you know, people ask me a lot, do, well, do you miss, well, don't you miss drinking? Don't you, don't you crave it? It's like we, like alcoholics walk around, you know, drilling at the mouth for alcohol. You know, I'm sure some people do. I mean, I'm lucky enough not to. But I, when it comes to alcohol, I, I miss it kind of like you would miss an old girlfriend who was really hot. Yeah. <laughs> but, but she yeah. turned out to be psycho and wanted to kill you slowly. <laughs> wow. That's, that's alcohol to me is that she may be fun for the first 10 minutes, but after the next, the rest of your life, it's she's going to kill you slowly. <laughs> well, I'm, here I am thinking, I'm listening to your story and now you're flying to 747 across the world you know here tony and i only fly across the country or you know tony you go out to hawaii and stuff but i'm thinking your new you know drink of love is probably coffee now well you probably drink a lot of coffee but coffee <laughs> you probably need a lot of coffee to keep you going now <laughs> yeah you know i've never been a big coffee guy i'm still oh, not yeah i'm sure I do, you will be soon diet yeah my caffeine's <laughs> diet coke there you uh, go. Coke or, it's a or, or when I'm, or when I'm <laughs> in Miami, I'll get Cuban coffee in Miami. Oh, there Great. you go. Yep. <laughs> what's that? Uh, what's good. that one? That cafe con uh, leche. Cafe con leche. Cortejitos. Cortejitos. Yeah. Yeah. Those. Little espresso. Uh, those are. Yeah. Those are awesome. You yeah. know, but. I, I actually yeah, have a I problem. Got... I'm here. To, I'm here to tell you that I do have a problem. I think I have about 20 <laughs> different espresso makers, yeah. machines. Yeah, I have a collection. A, I'm a coffee a guy. He's a coffee holic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a coffee. I'm, I am. I'm, I'm, I don't want to make light. That's not what I'm saying. But just you know, in this, I, I do have a coffee problem, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm not drinking any coffee right now because it's kind of late in the evening. But you know, I'm down to like one, one and a half pots a day. Yeah, coffee. Yeah, that's your social drinking is coffee. You know, I, really? I, I could. Oh, yeah. I'm. A, I am Italian. I. I gotta have my espresso, my <laughs> coffee, my good French that's roast. Great. You know, cappuccino. Thought, that's in the morning after 10 a.m. Ah, only yes. Americans drink cappuccino espresso. after 10 a.m. Well, I get to have an apostle platter to have your with your coffee and all your cheese and wine and cheese well, I like and crackers. My, and, I like my uh, biscotti and I dip it in the coffee uh, and get it nice and soft. And then, oh my god! Uh, oh, yeah, that's way beyond me. I'm, I'm a coffee rookie. I just still actually can't get into the coffee that much. But yeah, you know, but, but when it comes, you know, the one thing that we have to think about too. I, I just thought of this. If it may, if it has anything to do with is that. As we talk to the younger generations that come up as, as pilots, the guys that are CFIs right now, guys and girls that are CFIs right now are looking into in staying in this industry. And they're, even during this downturn, you know, could it, people tend to get stuck in this industry. They just can't leave it when they get into it, you know? Yeah. When, when, it, when it comes to the paths that, we were, that we've went down, you know, not all these paths lead to this, my situation, right? Not all these paths lead. Aviation was not the reason I was drinking. Okay. You know, right. Uh, it can't, it can't be stressful and, 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 you know, away from home, you know, boredom, you know, like that can lead to, you know, leads to drinking and partying, but it does not mean that it's it, your condition to be an alcoholic. You know, it's not going to turn you into one of these things, right. But it turned into what I am as an alcoholic, but, you can still enjoy it as you know, normal people, normal drinkers can still enjoy this career and still do it safely and professionally, you know, and, yeah. and, but don't get caught up into the, into the, the, into the aura of the pilots that we have to party our butts off. And that's how we, this, how we roll. Right. Uh, so that, your, your last comment right there, just 
um, just sparked a question in my mind. Do you think that's a gen? Uh, not, I wouldn't say a generational thing, but do you think that that's something that just comes with the aura of being a pilot? Because my example is like back in like Vietnam, there was a lot of people always smoking cigarettes when you're in the military, and that was the the that was the image of a tough guy. Right. So, right. you know, do you think the drink was is the image of, um, you know, here I am, I'm I fly heavy metal and I'm a pilot and I'm yes, gonna I have do. a drink. Yeah. yeah, I think it is because some of the uh, the heroes of aviation that, that have been, you know, brought up in our lives like Pappy Boynton, right? Yeah, uh, had a had a you know was an alcoholic and he flew he flew combat intoxicated. He had whiskey yeah. in his airplane. You know, yeah, that's the, exactly he, what I'm he, asking. Yeah, yeah, he's a man's man, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the 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 movie, the right stuff. All the pilots are at the bars, are getting all crazy all the time, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, Chuck Yeager asked him, "You want a shot of whiskey?" You know, and uh, then you show like a Chuck Yeager in that same movie who broke his ribs, shouldn't have been flying airplanes, but he got away with it. Yeah. Right. You yep. know, uh, as as you go on, and you, you think about the stories from the Pan Am Clippers and all the pilots back then, and what they used to go through, and yeah. uh, you know, and the party hard charging fighter pilots from Vietnam, World War II, Vietnam, Korea. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I think yeah. it is. I think it, it, yeah. it, that drinking and partying is attached to our profession. Yeah, because yeah. I know the it, I know military has kind of gotten away from the uh, the celebration with drinks of a pilot because they used to have i mean i used to be in the military fighter squadrons every fighter squadron or every squadron that i know uh, that i know of had an in-house bar in their operation center and all the pilots i'll say all of them <laughs> most of the pilots would you know so, you know after four or five o'clock after the mission was over that's where they're hanging out. You got to partake mean, and, and get into that camaraderie. That's the social, exactly. That was and, their and, CRM. And, you know, <laughs> and no, and you're, I'm, you're, you're, couldn't be more far from the correct, from, from being right. That's, that's kind of how it was, or that's kind of how, it, you know, it, it was for a long time. There was a lot of pressure and, too, um, you know, come drink with us. What's wrong with you? Right. Exactly. How many and times have you heard of how that? you made your way up the, you know, some of the, you know, the, the echelons of the, of the rank system was, uh, you know, just because of, you know, your, your, the way you bond with people and, and, you know, a lot of stories that they tell <laughs> was over, you know, Hey, remember, like, uh, you said, David earlier. Uh, so one of your stories, you said, Hey, remember when this happened and, you know, everybody laughed about <laughs> it, but right. that's, that's seriously, I mean, that's, it's been, it's part of the whole stigma stigma of being a, uh, a pilot, you know, and it, right. that's what kind of worries me. Well, you, re you remember the red flag videos you used to play on? Uh, this is the, this is all the incidents on, uh, you know, Sunday or Monday morning flights at the red flag when they might be in Vegas all weekend and then go out yeah. and run an F-16 through some trees on a ridge. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know, you, that video, yep. You know, that, that, yep. No reason right. to hit so it, but they did. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's a stigmatism. Yeah. Yes. You're right. It is attached to our industry. Yeah. Now you, you know, of course we can go out and have fun. Of course you can have your fun. But what what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get across to these to anybody that's listening is that when you when it when it becomes no fun anymore, but you pretend it is, 
and you have told yourself you want to stop over and over and over again, but you cannot physically stop drinking. That's who I'm talking to. Yeah. I'm, I'm not talking to the guys that can go out like you guys and have one or two sure. drinks and go back to your room and go to sleep. That there's, that's wonderful. I've, I hung out with guys all last month doing just that. Yeah. You know, when I was in my, uh, in training for almost, you know, two and a half, three months, I was with guys drinking every single day. All right. As we were studying and, and after we were done studying and going to, I was driving the top golf and back so we could take a break, you know, and let him, top golf. you know, <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, which is a crazy thing. Top golf. I, I hate golf, but that was actually kind of fun. <laughs> um, th- that's what we have to get down to is, is okay. 99% of the guy of the guys and girls we fought with can handle it with their alcohol. I'm talking to that 1% that might need help yeah. that might, that might need to hear the fact that they are not alone. Yeah. And one thing I want to stress too, I want you to do this is that anybody listens to this that needs to talk to somebody, reach out to these guys. They have my email address and my cell phone number. I'll, I'll go give them permission to give it out. If you need help and you don't have anybody else to talk to, you call or text me and I'll talk to you anytime you need me to. Oh, excellent. Wonderful. Thank you for a- answer for doing that. Yeah. Any question? Anyone listening that is struggling and has decided that it is time to ask for help, you can do so. You know, David has, has very graciously offered to have his contact uh, information out there. So the way we're going to do that is just send us an email here at the show. You can do that from the website at aviatortony.com or at aviatortony at gmail.com. Send me an email directly and tell me what's going on. If there's any way we can help, I will put you in contact with David and we will find you help. Because if you're listening to this story, you know that there's hope. You know, there's always hope. And there are people out there that are going through the same kind of struggles that, that you may be going through and that are willing to help. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And if, if you're out there in that, that haze of depression, anxiety, uh, you, you just can't seem to wrap your hands around it. You don't know why you can't. And for some reason, you just cannot put that drink down. You can't stop. And you just don't know what's happening and you need somebody to talk to. Like I said, it, it, reach out to your hands, guys. Reach out to, you know, like I said, to me, I'll talk to you every day, all day. If I have to reach out to somebody. Uh, that you trust and talk and talk to them because you're not alone. You're not the only one going through this. And you'd be very surprised of the people that will stick their hands up and help you. People will help you. Yeah. Well said. You know, I, I I can't say it enough. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, Final couple questions before we wrap it up today. You know, as you know, listening to the show, I like to ask a couple questions uh, towards the tail end of the interview. And the ones I wanted to ask you, who is it that has had the biggest impact on your career and why? Boy, that's a, that is a good question. The biggest impact on my career. This one gets everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because you don't know. Okay. Uh, The gentleman's name, I'm going to say his name. His name is uh, Mark Enfeld. He was a, uh, he's, he's retired now, but he was a corporate pilot that worked with me in Cincinnati. Uh, I came up to that job as a rough freight dog. I've been flying, you know, those Lear 25s and Falcon 20s 
And now I've got this beautiful hanger with these three beautiful hawkers uh, going to these, you know, having to wear a tie and, you know, and shave. What are you talking about? You know, and, uh, uh, you know, and he, he molded me and, and, and to be, a, a, you know, that getting, you know, I, I thought this is enough ice or that coffee is warm enough. You know, no, it wasn't, you know, this is what you have to do if you want to be a professional pilot. And he showed me and he was, and we, 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 we melded together so well because he was an old tailwheel guy too. And we flew tailwheel together when I was up there in Cincinnati and some places he knew. He taught me a lot and he taught me uh, 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 not only how to be a, a, a better pilot, but he taught me how to be a professional and every aspect of it from, you know, from the moment you show up to the moment you walk out, walk away from the airplane. Yeah. It's amazing to hear these, to hear these, uh, the people that, that help us along the way. And, you know, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, I, I never get tired of hearing these wonderful, unique stories of, of the influences that we have. And it's like we mentioned earlier in the show as well, is that there's so many people that have helped guide you on your path, on your journey. And that's wonderful that you were willing to oh, share yeah. that with us. Thank you. Uh, David, if you lost your ability to fly tomorrow for whatever reason, what would you do? I would get a, I would go uh, get a law degree and I would be an aviation attorney. Oh, wow. Well, that's you know, awesome. if you, uh, if you decide to go and get a law degree while you're still flying uh, and become an <laughs> aviation attorney so that maybe in retirement, you're, ready to go i applaud you for that because yeah. we need yeah. all the representation we can get especially now wow. in 2020 with all of this yeah. that's going on yeah. I, oh well you know actually that was one of the things when i during my alcoholism before i decided to get help i decided that if they wouldn't let me fly and drink i was going to quit flying and go be a lawyer because nice. everybody wants to hire a drunk lawyer, right? I mean, you saw it on movies all over the place. <laughs> the old Perry Mason. So why, why not? You know, yeah, that, that's a, that's a that's another thing that alcohol does to you. Well, you know, just to wrap it up real quick. Is one thing about the alcoholic brain, right? Is that you think that if you change jobs, you'll be okay. I'll quit drinking. Mm. If I change states, I'll quit drinking because. I'll leave the problems behind me. You know, it's called a geographical cure. Yeah. Or, or an employment cure. One of the things I've heard from a, in the rooms is that every state sign in America should have a little sign underneath it that says, this one doesn't work either. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's something that's, that people think about is that, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, I, if I could be a lawyer, I, I, I would like to get there. I actually thought about doing some night school, you know, uh, now that I got some more time and a little bit longer layovers. I might actually do that, but I got I to gotta get through the LSAT first. I heard the LSAT was pretty tough. So. Yeah. Well, you did this program, so I think you'll be able, you'll do just fine with the LSAT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got we'll a question see. for we'll you. Uh, so my question is, I heard you mention, and I hope you don't, get too offended if I say it, but you're, you're about the same age as I am. You said 48 and yes, uh, you've been doing this for a long time, uh, flying. Yes, Where sir. do you see yourself in 16 years or so? That'd be put you around 65, wouldn't it? Uh, 15, yes, 16 yeah, years. 60, yeah. Yeah. 65. Yeah. 17 years now, 16 years. Uh, yeah. the way I'm going to, uh, start a small flight school and, 
do it with tailwheel airplanes, uh, do tailwheel endorsement, spin training, unusual attitude recovery. And then I want to, I'm going to go out and get uh, a steerman. I'm going to get, I'm going to have a super decathlon and then try to get a steerman and do kind of like that nostalgic kind of checkout where you come out and fly a World War II airplane. Cool. And then, uh, yeah. I have a flight school that teaches aviation from the basics, from gliders to tailwheel to uh, antique airplanes and really how to get into the minutia of aviation, how to get out there and get your hands dirty, not just walk out and do a pre-flight and go fly a VOR approach. You've flown 15 times to get an instrument ready right. to, to get back into aviation as an art form and not just a mechanical, you know, power goes here, stick goes there. Airplane does this is to learn how to fly, how to hear, how to feel the air, feel the wind and the glider's wings and understand what your rudders do. I mean, come on. I think I just, you know, I just thought of your first, your flight school's name, evolution training, evolution training center or evolution training school. That's a pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty catchy. I don't know. You you said a couple words there and I don't know. It buzzed. (laughs) Yeah. I I just, that's what I want to do. I'm going to try to get that off the ground because at an airport south of here in Tullahoma, Tennessee, it's THA is a airport. We have, uh, uh, two, uh, two, you know, two runways. We have two grass runways that are north, south, east, and west. So you can practice on the grass. You can practice on the pavement. You can do it all right there. And uh, it's in middle Tennessee, so it's right in the middle of the, you know, of, of, out in this area. I, I think, I think general aviation it needs that kind of thing. We need, we need, we need real pilots, and not, not that, not that we're not pilots, but people that that can fly an airplane. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, yeah. Well, the basic principles you know, of I flight. I mean, we teach yeah, we teach it where the fun is. Yeah. We skim over it, and we immediately put these. Especially now, they're in a Cessna 172 SP with a G1000 in it, and you ask them to oh, shoot yeah. an, AD, <laughs> an ADF or an NDB yeah. approach, and they're like, "What? We don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody does." Those I, I'm so far. I'm so far removed from flight training and general aviation altogether, but it just seems. In my mind, perception-wise, coming from where we did, where we were, Tony, you know, back uh, before we got hired at Sandpiper, just seems like most of the flight schools these days are just geared towards, you know, the professional pilot. Yeah. You, uh, you know, I'm sure pilot you factory. can go out and get your private. I'm sure you can go out and just get a private instrument and all that stuff. But it just, uh, you know, it just seems that there's so many schools out there. Just that's all they're pushing. Uh, maybe that's where the money is. I don't know, but um, you don't hear of the, yeah. things like you're talking about, David. At least in my area, you know, you don't hear too much about just hey, you know, let's let's have fun, let's uh, fly these cool airplanes, these basic airplanes. This is how you know Lindbergh did it. This is how Earhart did it. You know, open cockpits out. and yeah, biplanes. Yeah, and- oh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You well, know that. Look, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's well, that's right got such an allure to, to it, you know. It is. You know, it, 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 people miss out. Like right before I went to seven four school, I took a J three Cub from Tullahoma, Tennessee, to California. Wow. Right. Well, Six well, days wow. of flying, you know. <laughs> uh, with with, I got no elect, no electrical system, no no radios, and no starter. You know, I had to hand pop the airplane. Holy you know, uh, 30, 30 hours of flying across the United States at five hundred feet AGL. Didn't talk to anybody on the radio because I didn't have one. Wow. You know? <laughs> and I'm just cruising over the desert at 10 feet off the ground for hours. 
throughout. You know, wow. and it, I'm just sitting there. It was one of the most spiritual things I've ever witnessed. You know, it, it was yeah. so fun. You know, a couple of times I got the crap kicked out of me for the turbulence, but still. <laughs> uh, uh, and that wasn't any fun, but, you know, flying across the mountains in, in a J3, you know, uh, it, 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 how many people get to do that? And I, I want, I want people to, to be able to get out and do that and get, get, and get back into aviation because at most of these big flight schools, like you said, they are pilot factories. Yeah. Like uh, you can't go out if you went to a lot of these schools and got you know at, at colleges you can't go rent the airplane and just go take your girlfriend to a yeah. flying you know down somewhere to go have lunch you can't do that they won't let you do right. it yeah we 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 take we we're taking fun out of what we do flying yeah you know, we've all been in it so long that we know we, we're like okay great another sunset you know and we we tend to overlook the awesome stuff we get to see every day when we go fly yeah don't forget you know, to look out the window, huh? or all yeah. the fun we had that got us up to this point you know i mean you know for me some yeah. of my most fun was the flight training days you know that first time when your instructor said hey we're gonna go out and do some stalls you're like what Ooh. can't wait <laughs> yeah yeah man steep turns sweet or ground reference maneuvers rock on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. What are you talking yeah, about? I do those all the time in the Airbus. I do turns around right, a point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we a little do. high on final. We do. Hey, just do it three sixty. <laughs> okay, it turns around a point. <laughs> exactly. You know, and they yeah. go out and do loops and rolls and Sean Dales and stalls and stuff. Yeah, yeah, the passengers yeah. love it. <laughs> Power off one eighties and yeah, super awesome. You know, actually go out there and fly an airplane to the edge of its performance, and you know, and how many times do we actually do that? Yeah, you know, yeah. you got to take a seven three or a seven four out to its very edge, so you don't die. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not gonna happen. And not saying that you know. Yeah. So we have to. I just want. I just want to see. I would love to see people get back into the fun of aviation. It's like that's why I missed the air shows this year. The air shows are you know didn't happen this year, unfortunately. Yeah. But when you go when you go to I think going to Oshkosh should be a prerequisite for an ATP. You should go up there and at least see aviation. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, you have to go to Oshkosh one time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember I flying uh, Chicago over to—I don't know if it was over to Madison or Rochester or something—and uh, you know, regional airline flying for Sandpiper on a regular flight, and they stopped our descent. Uh, they told us to maintain whatever it was—I don't know, nine thousand feet—and they said, uh, "Caution, flight of twenty-two, uh, a couple thousand feet below you." <laughs> I went, "I'm sorry, what?" Twenty-two, yeah, twenty-two bonanzas are going to be flying under you now. I'm like, what? <laughs> speed oh, yeah, our discretion. So we slow down to like the slowest speed possible. I'm looking out of my window. The FO's looking out of his window, and we're like, where, where? And we saw him. Sure enough, twenty-two wow. in formation, straight line, right across. Unbelievable. Going to Oshkosh, and oh, I yeah. thought, oh my god, do I want to be there right now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so much fun when you go into Oshkosh, but you know, I, you know, it's just the thing is. I don't. I, I like to talk about airplanes. Like a, a guys, like, what do you do when you go home? I was like, well, I go tow gliders, or I'll go fly this airplane, or I'll go do this. And they're like, I don't. I don't want to touch airplanes when I'm home. I'm like, well, okay, eh. you know, I'm, <laughs> whatever. I'm sorry, I, you know, that's my thing. Great, you know. Yeah. But I, I just, you know, I want people to do it. You know, my son likes to go to the glider place with me and and hook up the gliders and tow the gliders with the uh, golf cart, and hopefully he'll get into that. 
you know, uh, my daughter, I want her to do the same thing if she wants to, if she doesn't, that's fine. And, but I love aviation. I love it. And I, and I've been lucky enough to give it a new way to look at it, a life and look at the aviation. And like when I was flying over the South Pacific, the other, you know, other night, and I flew, we flew over Iwo Jima going from Guam into Japan. Ooh, cool. Yeah. Historic place. And yeah. I was like, man, I'm a big historian. I like history. I read a lot of, a lot of history and i was like man look at that there's mount sarabachi you can see the you know you can see it just plain as day and i was like oh my god that's so cool wow and the captain was like what are you talking about man i'm like that's iwo jima dude he's like okay you know i'm like okay yeah well, okay. let's talk about you know yeah <laughs> well yeah, yeah let me like, show you a picture of my corvette hold on yeah. <laughs> yeah, here's my, here's my second boat yeah, I just yeah. bought. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. He's like, if Japan had it, they were, you'd be, you'd be driving a Honda. So, yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't because of Iwo Jima, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, it's just, it, you know, I like it. You know, I, I, I'd love it, and I'm just glad. I'm just so glad that I'm, in, you know, I, God gave me this opportunity to come back and do it again. And, you know, I'm not going to waste this one. So I, I want to give back. And what you said, where I would be in 16 years is I want to still, also, I still want to be giving back to aviation because I, I, I'm thinking about too, but you've been getting into the training department and doing some, you know, sim training or maybe doing something like that. And uh, I think that'd be something I could do uh, maybe, but yeah, I want to be able to give back to aviation. And I think we, I think we all deserve it. We, I think it back. I think the aviation deserves it from us to give back as much as we can in our careers oh i couldn't have said that better myself that is amazing and and let me tell you david you have been giving back the the fact that you're on the show with us hopefully reaching out to a growing audience that loves to share the the journeys that we've been sharing here with them about aviation about the struggles in in aviation about the challenges and the hurdles that we have to overcome as aviators in this industry and the the pleasure and the joy and the passion that also comes from this wonderful career you know i thank you for sharing your story with us and hopefully you know we will have made a difference in someone's life out there and it'll all be worth it can I can I take a second to thank somebody real quick? Some people real Absolutely. fast. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to I want to say thank you to my uh, old company, uh, the, the the fractional company, for what they did for me. Uh, and I also want to say thank you to my current company uh, for giving me the chance, the opportunity of, uh, of taking a chance on me. Uh, of course, my family and all my friends that helped me out out there. On, and, uh, if they happen to listen to this or my, any of my friends or thank you all very much i could not have done it without you guys and i wanted to say i thank you from the bottom of my heart and thank you for sharing your story for having the courage to come on to to come out here and and give us a a taste of of what you've gone through you know i wish you all the best uh i i have a feeling that we're going to see some great things from you with this idea that you have for possibly starting up a company of flight training and vintage aircraft uh that's (laughs) <laughs> wonderful to hear i'd love to be there for that so let me know how that turns out the fact that you're you here with come us, down. yeah the fact that yeah. you're here with us today talking about this having this future ideas about where you're going to be in 10 15 or 16 17 years is wonderful and yeah. you know thank god that you're here to share yeah. it with us thanks for having me absolutely thanks for having me well do you enjoy squawk ident podcast i hope you do we all do and if you do we encourage you to visit our website at aviatortony.com 
On the homepage, you can find methods to contribute to our show by becoming a producer and help us with production expenses. You can also leave us audio feedback, show topics that you'd like to hear from us or that you'd like to have us cover, and you can also view some of the many photos that we've shared from the flight line. Under the Guestbook tab, you can view some of the photos that our featured guests have shared with us as well. Facebook and Instagram users can find us under the Squawk Ident podcast, and YouTube and Twitter users can find us under Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. We encourage you to support us on the YouTube channel with a like, a subscribe, and a share. And don't forget to select the little bell to be notified on any new videos. Well, in closing, I would just like to say thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. See you later, guys. See you later, guys. David, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Congratulations. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>